Welcome to No Royal Road, where we talk about the, how the road to surfing somehow veers through Marxology, <laughs> um, or how all of our leaders suck, or whatever happened to the new left. Oh yeah, and slash or. Now, you know, we were talking about the Robert Brenner debates, and you mentioned uh, Dylan Riley and Robert Brenner's, like, Seven Thesis on American Politics, yeah, which I believe is from December of last year. And I find that, that essay to be kind of galling. Um, it's extremely so, yeah. Because I talked to Andrew Hartman, for example, and he said similar things about Biden in the first six months, but he's like, look, I got got. I, I was misunderstanding what was going on um he said this on my show right and you have to give somebody credit for like coming to that realization and saying so you know Mm -hmm. but from like there's across the spectrum where the people who were leading the charge against obama have been like well biden's a more competent form of that he's a more left-wing form of that and you hear this coming out of like people like who are laborites in the uk who's like well biden's more left-wing and i'm like and what bizarro world (laughs) Are you guys thinking that Biden is more left wing when he passes? Like we're saying this when you know his milk toast of student loan pans about to get gutted by the Supreme Court if right. not just outright overthrown in a way that actually I think is going to have reverberations about executive privilege and legislative stuff uh, in a way I don't even think the conservative Supreme Court intends because they no longer are operating off of any jurisprudence that makes any sense. Um, even from a conservative standpoint, um, the death of originalism has led to like just blatant partisan hackery. But, yeah. but you know, and originalism was itself all blatant partisan hackery. But a lot of the liberal response to this is like, well, we need more administrative state and popular sovereignty. And I'm like, you do know that like the reason why we have this whole mess in the first place is what you fuckers did during the Warren court, right? like like uh before that there were limits on the supreme court and no one pretended that they were the the total adjudicator of the damn law but um similarly there's all these new leftists who are trying to be like yeah we're too harsh on biden and i'm like so you you take literally the sclerotic and geriatric manifestation of centrist boomer liberalism and tell us that he's more left-wing than we think he is. I feel like our leaders are gaslighting us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like only- that, that entire piece there I you know I have I have notes on it and I can't I'm looking through it. There's not a single part that I didn't just like I didn't just want to like you know, whatever. It's, the entire thing is worthless. I think you could too harsh on Biden is by expecting him to be anything other than what he is. Like if you're expecting him to be like some sort of, you know, FDR two, uh, the way that social Democrats think that FDR was, you know, where he's like just secret, secretly trying to slide slide some socialism in, you know, um, I think if you're expecting that and criticizing that, then that's criticizing him too harshly because it's not a thing that he was ever going to be. <laughs> But if you're criticizing him as like the uh, the head of the American empire and the representative of global capital, then it's impossible to be too harsh. Yeah, then you're just doing it right. Yeah. I mean, it's... 
what I find interesting about this, and this is a thesis that we're going to have to deal with, because um, it's one that I think I was right about in some ways. Um, the Gen X left was not really left in so much that it was so atomized from the beginning in various causes and, and, and was constantly in a reactive mode, right? Like what unites the Gen F, the Gen X left, nothing other than anti-war protest and right. anti-globalization protest. And even then, yeah. like there's no positive vision. Um, That's true. That foment- Occupy everything, demand nothing. Right. That foments and Occupy and Occupy liquidates it out and it liquidates it out into um, like what is ultimately a rather milk toast and concessionary and recuperated social democracy that restarts the project of the baby boomers failure. So what what a lot of what the, the DSA left is trying to do is jumpstart Harringtonism, but not back at 82, back at 68 right like that's really what they're trying to do we're just going to ignore all the history of the left between those times more or less and we're going to make you know valiant overtures to the early 20th century in response to that because that is also recuperable and (laughs) obviously so um we see the left retreat into like fantasy. Well, not just the left, the entire political spectrum retreat into fantasy versions of early 20th century ideologies. So we have like new deal, new deal, progressivism, uh, Marxist Leninism, et cetera, all basically being inorganic regressions to things that are from the early 20th century so that we Mm -hmm. can not deal with, the implications of any part of the 20th century. I mean, the fact that, for example, your your average Zoomer high school Stalinist, um, <laughs> which is a real thing, by the way, I've taught yeah. it. Oh, yeah. It, it, it very is. much is, yeah. Um, has, like, can't even tell how much weird random bullshit both left, both from what we would call, you know, rad lib ridiculousness to outright reactionaryism that's being snuck into their conceptions of Stalin because it's inorganic and it's basically just serving as a way to differentiate yourself from the priorly recuperated um, forms of politics. Yeah, that's true. Now, what I find interesting about that is our, our, you know, the academics and like the, the book, the new left wasn't really boomers. It was really what silent generation or lost. I always forget. I get silent and lost generation. I think confused. silent generation is like the world war one generation. Right. So this yeah. is lost generation. Yeah. Lost generation. Greatest um, generation. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, we tend to think a lot of the leaders of the new left were baby boomers. They weren't there. Whatever that not greatest generation, not baby boomer generation is Yeah, like the people who haven't had kids yet who are kind of the parents of the Gen Xers are really the leaders of the new left. That's why they're all dying in their eighties, right? Like baby boomers are in their sixties and seventies. Yeah. Um, Baby boomers are the only generation that I also think is substantively real. All the other generations are kind of responses to this. And by mean that, like they materially altered the entire economy by their being, and you cannot ignore that. Yeah. Yeah, That's true. Um, Like, 
most of our conceptions of social services come up with having to deal with the large number of children that the baby boomers, you know, were. Most of our conception of like the problems of end of life care deal with the fact that there are so many baby boomers. Like, it's just the way it is. What there's one statement that I think is actually true, but I I think is actually funny. Um, Bidenism offers Keynesianism without growth, which to me is like, yeah, you know what that means? It doesn't work. Yeah, it yeah. offers a Keynesianism that doesn't make any fucking sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's just I also just think like, what Keynesian stuff have they actually achieved? Almost nothing. So, um, yeah, what I wrote for that was that no growth Keynesianism is just not Keynesianism. Biden emergence on the triumphant of the ruins of Clinton's project once the behind the scenes moves by Democratic leadership have orchestrated the seat of Bernie Sanders. Bidenism also, however, and crucially, a specifically post-Trump phenomenon. This is just this is literally popular front logic, but, but as as manifest by by people who are going into retirement. You know, like their son. They're sunsetting on their political project and mad that the youth are mad because they're scared of of reaction. But of course, as this as the essay we're actually here to talk about, um, <laughs> yes, the, uh, the critique of neo feudalism, and this is really just interesting because this is from the same publication, and um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that year. I mean, I told you guys off air that I think what Dylan Riley and Robert Brenner are also trying to respond to is like um, Mike Davis's utter like despair at the end of his life, which is manifested in his last essay, which is yeah, just like, right. yeah, just like, yeah, even China, it's all Bonapartism now. Like no one has any vision anymore and it's all sclerotic and they're, I don't know how, like no one's acting rationally. Etc. and so forth. All the empires are fading into each other, and multipolarity is basically only happening because no one's competent. Like, and that's, you know, I think a whole lot of people have been trying to respond to that in various ways, and a lot of the copes, you know, have to do with leftist weird, you know, 13th generational tests around bricks or Putinism or some such nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, they have to be, they have to be. Um, you know, they have to believe in something. They have to be optimistic about something. Yeah. See, not being optimistic is like the worst, the worst sin an American can engage in, regardless of whether or not they're on the right or the left. Yeah. You know, it's actually interesting. Um, I find that people overstate my pessimism as doomerism because I'm actually not a doomer. I don't think that like there's no hope, but I do kind of think that clearing out every tendency right now that's emerging on the American political scene um, as basically incoherent to the fact that we've witnessed this strange non-death of the technocratic center after it's failed at literally everything for 40 years. Yeah. Like Like it seems to be unaccountable and it seems like the left really is, for reasons of fear of right-wing, count, uh, what we might call counter-systemic into, uh, impetus, trying to prop up the center. Yeah. It would be like if, like, the entire left was trying to say Bismarck because they were afraid of the Nazis. 
Yeah, and that's essentially it's like it's the same thing, but as farce, right? Mm-hmm. Well, did try the left to actually try, try to, to save Bismarck because they're afraid of the Nazis? I don't think they were, but like Hindenburg. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, Hindenburg. But yes, yeah. Um, no, absolutely. The uh, the Social Democratic left went all in on Hindenburg, um, to because they were afraid of the Nazis. No, they got the Nazis anyway. Yeah, well, Hindenburg let freaking of von Poppen, you know, nominated Hitler to be chancellor. What's wild about this situation is just that like, even the thing that they're afraid of, even the threat is just, it's not very material. It's like, it's vaguely like a fear that, that doesn't manifest. So it kind of doesn't really mean a lot. Right. I mean, like Trump is clearly horrible, obviously, but Trump is no Hitler. <laughs> right. That's what they're afraid of is Trump, right? Yeah, well, it, it also it also just is is uh, maddening to me because we're clearly looking at DeSantis who takes Trumpism and instead of doing it in rhetoric and tweets, does it in policy. Yeah. Um and it's and we we've seen that in the courts, and yet our defense against against the, you know whatever DeSantisism ends up being, if that's the actual threat, and who knows? I, I find that leftists tend to be just wrong about what's coming up from the right these days. Yeah, um, I just don't. I don't see DeSantis as having the charisma and like presence that Trump does. The the uniting presence that Trump does. Like. I, I don't think it'll be DeSantis. But I, think I don't think Trump has it anymore either. Trump doesn't. Not like he used to, but still more than DeSantis, I think. So, I mean, so and with people responding to the courts and with the Democrats having totally... This is another thing that I think the Brenner essay that we're talking about... I'm going to might throw it in our show notes. I don't know. Um, is is uh, missing is that... Well, one, it is clear. It is clear that parts of the of the of the right, whatever the new nationalist right, the Michael Lind compact magazine crowd, are right about, is that part of the economic coalition of the Democratic Party that made it seem workerist at all is actually switched political sides at the very time where there's a social democratic movement trying to invoke the name of workers um, in a way that like nobody can take seriously, including the DSA, which is why it's beginning to hemorrhage members. Right. Um, And that's really predictable historically. Like I've talked about the numbers and stats there. Um, And the other thing is you just see all this analysis that is so presentist and immediate and frankly has no sense of history from fucking historians yeah that's um that's definitely uh, well it's, it's definitely the most troubling part i'm not exactly sure what it says like by itself other than just like nobody knows anything and very few people are willing to admit it yeah well, it worries me because normally I'm like, well, the problem is historians have been disinclined uh, since the 1970s to make any grand narrative stuff. They 
they focus on micro history, even though the micro historians were not against grand narratives. They were, you know, it wasn't like they were postmodernists or some shit. Like if you break some up- of them were, but yeah, the most most micro historians they saw their project as being a small part of that could help reinforce ideas that are within grand narratives. But the thing is, is that so many people just abandon grand narratives to focus on micro history. The grand narrative sort of fell out of favor. Right. And then there is yeah. a new historical, you know, historiography about that coming out of like post-structuralism um, that had kind of got incorporated in, but, it, but also it's not to blame it strictly on post-structuralism is actually irresponsible. I know a lot of Marxists oh, yeah. do that. I think there's, because that trend is even in people who are like, you know, quote historical materialist of the of the mar- uh, of the post Marxist school or whatever who are not particularly post structurally sympathetic, they'll start whenever you start talking about long durée trends, you know, particularly ones that are like structurally systemic to things beyond even capitalist societies. Like you start talking about like oligarchical developments. Um, yeah. Uh elites encounter elites and, and stuff like that and a cyclosis from like uh, from like um uh Proclus, um ibn kundun you know that sort of thing they immediately go oh no that's all wrong they you know and i'm like and part of me goes like yeah it, it's not universal but uh you you guys is are protesting too much but when i see it from people like robert brenner I am way more worried. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean maybe we should go into that. Um this part 2 of the of the, the of the essay we're supposed to actually talk about today. Right. Like uh, the, uh, that was our intro. 18 minutes in. <laughs> we're yeah. going to talk about the We're, we're going to talk shit about about the degeneration of Robert Brenner, which worries me because I think Brenner and and Ellen Milkins Wood were actually really refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh 20 25 30 years ago. Like Yep. Um, and unfortunately, American Woods is dead, so I don't know if she would have gone with Brenner on a lot of this stuff. I mean, she died right before a lot of this stuff became, uh, you know, questions again. But let's get let's get back to this. Brenner or Wallerstein, which I, I find funny as a side note. I've been doing a lot of research on the 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 the, the, the results of analytic Marxism and like people who were aligned to G.A. Cohen before the revival of analytical Marxism with people mm-hmm. like Viv- uh, Vivek Chibbers and, and whatnot. Um, what I'm learning, unfortunately, is that a lot of the, the Brenner Wallerstein debates are two different sides of reaction to the analytical Marxist interpretation of modes of production. Like, I didn't know that till recently, but like they were responding to G.A. Cohen. No, really, I I didn't yeah. know that either. Yeah, yeah, that's I... that's kind of the context for this debate, and then the other context is like month is like Postal Draper Monthly Review. Wallerstein and Co are slightly more sympathetic to China and to Maoism, and Brenner and Co are slightly more sympathetic to Trotskyism. You know, um, and so also there's all this like pre-new left, post-classical old left, like sectarian stuff being snuck in in these academic debates. So, 
which I think we should always look for. I always tell people, like, if you want to understand how David Graeber gets weird, look at what anarchists were arguing about two years before that book was written. Um, and similarly, I think we have to do that here. Like, um, like some of the, we, I mentioned to you the weirdness of, of these debates leading to people like Benaji, who, despite being, you know, priorly a Heinrich Grossmanite from India and the guy who like translated Grossman into English in the seventies is now writing a history of commercial capitalism that starts commercial capitalism and specifically like all the way back at the end of the Roman empire, which, you know, it's kind of interesting because that's that's like I told you my quest is like, well, why didn't antiquity become capitalistic? Because most of the things yeah. were there. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently he says, well, most of the things were there. So it was. And I'm like, not only that, but it was it was a, a very specific advanced version of capitalism already. Well, yeah. so no. <laughs> yeah, this is this is something that really sticks in your craw, Derek. Like this is every every time we talk about you know transitions, you're always like, God damn Banaji and his predating capitalism to the Roman Empire. Well the thing is, is like I was a big defender of his of his book Theory is History, but mm-hmm. I, I, I said like, well, some of this criteria might have you find capitalism like in places that you never expected to find it. And then lo and behold, like hey, at least he's being consistent, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, and then I'm like, well, but then I'm like, but now we sound like libertarians. And the reason why I I, I kind of am harping on this is because I do think Brenner's position on techno neo feudalism or whatever is totally inconsistent with his actual analysis of the beginnings of of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I want to get into like what that's about, and I think what's driving it actually is sectarian commitments, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but anyway, we need to actually talk about that. So I'm going to just read what Morozov says, because, you know, Morozov is actually... He's a good writer. Oh, he's a remarkably good writer. Yeah. I've been reading so much left-wing theory and then I'll read like communitarian theory. I'm like, oh my God, the communitarians have such an edge just because they fucking talk like normal people. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, well, like, lately I've been reading like Christopher Hill and, uh, you know, um, all of the British Marxists for this project that I had to do for class. And, they also uh, write like normal people. Yeah, they write they write so well. And then I, you know, just pop open some stuff, like articles that people post on Twitter and I'm trying to look and it's like modern Marxist. I'm like, God, man. Yeah. Like, seriously. It's, just, it's unreadable. Is it, it is. A lot of it is. Yeah. yeah. It's like weird psychoanalytic jargon. And I also remind people, psychoanalysis didn't used to be unreadable either. Like, no. like, <laughs> I'm like, I feel like a lot. I do. I do. This is where my like analytic brain goes off and i'm like some of this is off your story let's be honest like this is this is pretending you need um hyper technical jargon in places that you don't actually need it yeah um you see some of it creeping into my writing too because like i subconsciously trying to sound smarter than i am or something i think that's what's going on here um (laughs) you have have to be very careful about that (laughs) yeah i was recently talking to some brazilian thinkers who i think are really cool but they they've read too much badu and yeah, like they were using ac- axiomatic in a way that's like the opposite of the way it's used in formal logic. And then I'm like, well, none of this makes like, how do you expect the, 
Look, you're using technical jargon, but uh, and this is something Altusera does too. Using technical jargon, but in a way that's like that you invented, um, that doesn't mean what that technical jargon tends to traditionally mean. Um, well, if you ask any random Zoomer, you know, language changes, and it's actually reactionary to insist that words have meanings. That's right. <laughs> we- <laughs> <laughs> as an educator i'm insulting you <laughs> uh, well no it, it it bugs me because like there's a truth to that but there is kids, yes absolutely. but these kids don't know like there's also a way which that is easily abused and i'm like funny zoomer you don't realize how you're like just channeling bullshit liberals who you claim to hate like uh stanley fish well, I mean, like, that's sort of like the entire project of the left these days is that actually everything that is bad is good because that's what liberals say. And liberals don't want things to change. They just want to, you know, make it make us all psychologically OK with how terrible everything is. So you could say, like, everyone having a poor education and not being able to, you know. Yeah, that's actually good. Yeah. you, you, you can't Yeah, I told you. Did you guys yeah. hear me talk about. uh Somebody going on Antifada and talking about how literacy was bourgeois. And I was like, yes, it was only one of the good things that the bourgeois gave us, you dipshit. Like, yes, yes like... absolutely. Um, oh, that's that's it's just there's been a rank uh, anti-intellectualism that's sort of taken over the left. And it's not like an anti-intellectualism that's actually aimed at intellectuals. It's aimed at what we would consider basic literacy. Uh in the past, because I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an educator as well in a sense in that I grade a lot of uh, papers and counsel a lot of angry undergraduates about why they got such bad grades. And I got to say that the levels of functional illiteracy that I see in my students is just astronomical. Yeah. Like no, it's I, really, really bad. And these, I, these, these people are college students at a good college, you know, it, it's funny. I was talking to someone about like, they were like, well, you, it was a conservative and they were talking to me about like uh, you guys are trying to, you know, you're trying to get rid of honors classes because uh, you you want to make everything equal. I'm like, no, no. A lot of us are getting rid of honors classes because the kids in the honors classes literally can't read either <laughs> because we haven't been able to track them for 20 years. Right. Tracking is more or less illegal. So yeah. like all those honors classes are doing is giving them a star, making them feel good. Like, so it, it, uh, when they argue about it for equity's sake, what they're actually, what the people aren't telling you is why people, why teachers agree to it is like, yeah, because the only people who know to ask for honors classes are like rich, white parents. But when we actually look at their scores on literacy assessments, that they're not that much smarter uh, than the yeah. poor kids the poor kids who don't ask what this is actually coding for is be is compliance behavior. And that isn't what honest classes did even in the United States before the 1990s. But IDA was interpreted in such a way that tracking for that is more or less illegal. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, and I'm actually a defender of the IDEA law, but there are elements of it that have perverse incentives and nobody what, knows it. So what is that? What's the IDEA law? I'm not IDEA familiar. law was the law that made it where you had to take special ed seriously, more or less. You couldn't just throw oh, okay, anyone yeah, who had yeah. any condition in a room and just like, you know. Um, yeah. Like whenever I was a, a kid, like the, the special ed uh, department or whatever, 
was such a wide and varied group of people that were all jammed in together. It oh yeah, me too. Couldn't have possibly have been a, a good learning environment. It was terrible. Uh, yeah, it was. I, it was just to not have to think as much about that particular category, however I, big that category needed to be. I was yeah. dyslexic and aphasic, and when I um, when it came back to the states, I was put immediately into uh, also because I was poor, so that didn't help. No. Um, I was put immediately into special ed, and they had people in there with emotional problems, with behavioral defiance disorder, with I, with with low ID, intellectual disability, with dis, yeah. with with LDs, which are different, uh, all just shoved together. And uh, basically, what it meant was we just didn't get tested. So, like, no. they would have us play. I swear to God, they would just have us play like, Uno, and then like yeah. read a little bit. Um, so I, and and eventually, I literally turned down special ed um, accommodations in my in my high school in my high school years um, because it was not it was I didn't want to be in that room. By the time I got to high school, they started making um, accommodations for uh, people with with special needs. Like you could go take exams in a quiet room, get like two hours instead of one hour, or some people were allowed to have access to dictionaries or calculators or whatever. Uh, whereas it, it seemed like it was a little bit of an effort. This, this would have been in the late, late nineties, you know? Yeah. That's when uh, it happens. IDA codifies that and also yeah. codifies inclusion, meaning that a certain group of kids you can't throw into another class, but it also right. makes tracking not illegal explicitly, but very, very strongly discouraged. Yeah. Um, and then NCBL, NCLB goes on top of that and even does it more, but has this like testing component. What's happened now, um, uh, and this is this is one of the few things where I think the techno neo feudalist argument may actually apply because or I think we're going to deal with people who are not literate enough to be a be a uh, political subject. That's and that's a dark thing. And that may be something to talk about where there are elements yeah. of proof to this technonia feudal thesis. But um, uh, the only variable that's really test, like that the federal government and the state governments really care about now is graduation rates. Mm-hmm. Graduation rates is also the easiest variable to manipulate. Yeah. So stealthily people and this has not got hardly any discussion in the past 20 years the most states are dropping their base requirements for graduation um to pre-70s levels so like in california for example i think you only like 12 credits to actually graduate or something it's wow like so the minimums have been quietly being reduced this past decade um and the way we grade has been changed um, with a lot of things that came out of progressive education that are initially very good, um, standards-based grading, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, skills-based grading, uh, scales of one through four instead of a hundred, et cetera. Yeah. Um, except that they're being used, interpreted by administrators because of the focus on graduation rates for like, you'll get a one, which is a D for putting your name on a piece of paper in certain school districts. Oh man, I had uh, one of my grading rubrics that I had uh, the minimum grade that I could possibly give anyone was a sixty. Right. right? So yeah, like, exactly. If you they do yeah. anything at all, you get a D. That's basically that's a one through four model. Yeah. Um, and 
And so you add that with like e-learning and then you want to talk about chat GPT. And also, by the way, people like Ian Wright who think intellect that like machine learning does a lot more than it seems to do. Yeah. Um, I like Ian Wright in a lot of ways, but he's the Marxist who I think is a little like way too optimistic on what, what's actually indicated by a lot of this technology. Um, and you do have some things that would be concerning that are feudal like in so much, not in so much that we're in like actual feudal conditions in any meaningful sense. And I think that's, what we need to get back to the essay on, <laughs> but in so much that like, <laughs> what we used to think of as a proletarian subject now resembles the atomization and the general what we the general rule idiocy to use as Marx Marx's pretty chauvinistic right. terminology of of French peasants in the in the nineteenth century. I think the, we are the that. potatoes in a sack that I referred to in the last episode. Right, you know, yeah. like Matt Christmas Pringles in a can. Sometimes that, Christmas yeah. really is dead on. Yeah, like, I mean, if nothing else, he's uh, funny. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it, Everyone's probably has a pithy witticism that you you kind of you want to hold on to. Yeah, like the Pringles in a can is great because it's you know <laughs> processed potatoes. <laughs> exactly, it's like you're not like even more... potatoes in a can. You're you're your potato starch pressed together. <laughs> potato yeah. starch pressed together, deep fried, packaged with all kinds of preservatives and disgusting carcinogenic shit. You yeah. can take that. You can take that too far though, because also like. Unlike peasants in the 19th century, there is not really a clear way forward on any basis. <laughs> yes, yeah, I was about a, to say, like, that's peasants true. actually had the ability to kind of be a revolutionary subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even, well, so even if you skip the 18th century, you know, the objectively like revolutionary size of the peasants, even in the 19th century, at least the French peasantry could decide to give you um, Bonapartism. And they right. could, like, that would be. That's far in advance of where we are now. And the peripheral pe- peasantry could give you uh, so- socialism that's actually just bourgeois revolutions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, there's one thing that you said earlier about the the only real generation being Gen uh, is being the the baby boomers. boomers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that is going to be. We'll have to make an addendum with that being the next real generation is Gen Z, and that is like the post literate post-political subject generation right well unfortunately i think gen z is it it matters as the negative about imago of anything important yes Um, yeah yeah which i I know sounds really kind of sitting it's not because i don't think there are many like i'll defend gen z in some ways They're, they're less likely to bully they're more progressive on a lot of social values uh they're more conservative on others they have weird the, the amount of like no kink shaming, but also I feel guilty about the porn I consume is a very strange thing amongst those kids. But like, and then the the just and they don't have sex either. They just don't. Oh well, yeah, they, well, they don't socialize, right? Not not in the. I mean, and of it's course, not of course they the do socialize, yeah, but, but like, they don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like in some like somebody I was trying to explain to someone. Ask any kid, and this is not just Gen Z. It's also younger millennials. Yeah, yeah. Ask any of these kids what what social skills is needed to say, pick up a person at a bar without violating their will, consent, or ability. You know, and it's they, just too much trouble. Yeah, they don't have the conception of how to do that. It, it, no. it's, yeah. 
Well, it's um, because the the conception is is that if you approach someone, that you are already violating their like consent. Because right. the 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 meme is is that nobody wants to talk to you. Don't violate that by going up to someone and talking to them. Which to me is just an incredibly antisocial thing to have to have internalized as a generation. Well, yeah, like ten years ago, that meme would be a right wing meme making fun, like mocking. It would be like a fake version of a left wing meme, yeah, like, made to mock what left wingers actually think. Yeah, only it's actually left wing instead. I hate to say it, and I'm gonna. All of us are gonna dog eared as conservatives when I say stuff like this, but uh, the conservative satirists of 10, 15, and 20 years ago <laughs> actually right. <laughs> actually yeah. they didn't go far enough. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, they, they just didn't. No. Um, Good it, job, it, CIA. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Jobs a joke. Please don't put a tinfoil hat on me <laughs> um so but what background intellectual assumptions in the rich body of today's left thought makes something like neo-feudalism even thinkable after all making a strange argument that capitalism is somehow moving in reverse requires a particular understanding not only of its dynamics but also of activities and processes that are that are properly capitalist as well as those that are definitely not what are these assumptions? And I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because Morozov basically says that. And I'm like, yeah, like no one's even talking about what capitalism is. They're just assuming that we understand what's over. And the other thing that I think is interesting, and this I might actually fault Marx for. I know that we're never supposed to insult St. Marks, but I think Marx was too optimistic about the end of rentier relations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Marx yeah. is too optimistic about really everything. <laughs> like, yeah, like Marx. Marx thinks that, like, oh well, rentier relations are like a thing of the of the feudal past. We don't have to deal with that anymore. And I'm like, motherfucker, finance capital exists. And and Marx, Marx oddly sounds like an American founding father. And I know people are going to be, but the American founding fathers <laughs> are always talking about how, like, you know, finance capital. Yeah, it's a thing, but it's really about lazy speculators. Um, Marx believes that too. As uh, does Adam Smith. As does Adam, Adam Smith, Smith. Sounds like fucking Mao Zedong when he talks about landlords and speculators. Right. Um, and so does like so does like uh John Adams. Yeah. Um John, you know, like John Adams' like issue with his son is that he was a lazy lazily involved in speculators and stuff like that. But what I find interesting about that, um, you know, is that it assumes that it's going to go away until it doesn't. When it doesn't, we come up with monopoly capital theory, which mm-hmm. is relevant to this uh, yeah. discourse. Then Postone comes along and says, well, you know how all the Nazis always come out. And, and he's got a point. If you look at like someone like Werner Sombart, starts off as a Marxist, moves into the younger German historical school, ends up as a Nazi. Um, but you look at someone like Werner Sombart, who like, talks about like well you know capitalism sucks but the brave entrepreneur was like the best part of capitalism and like look at these lazy rentiers and we know that the lazy rentiers are all really jews right like right. um and and so postone goes okay well that's structural anti-semitic we can't talk about finance capitalism at all right Which, well and that's actually 
which is a big fucking problem because it's like it is it is and it's and it's actually sort of being like it, it's a lot of rad libs still use that today like if you mention finance capitalism they say oh that's just code for the jews so you're actually anti-semitic right yeah which is which is basically it's some way a lot of a lot of radical liberals and anarchists will go, well, like all Marxists are secretly are, are secretly crypto Nazis or crypto tourists or crypto whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mi- minority group that you think that we're crypto against because of, well, you're, you know, you start talking about the unproductivity of finance capital. And I will also admit there is something reactionary about focusing only on productive capital. Like I think the the heroic the 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 Sombart heroic entrepreneur shit is actually a deviation and wrong. Marx doesn't have that. Yeah. Uh, not that everything Marx says is right. We've already said he's too fucking optimistic. Yeah. But yeah. like, like for example, I keep on trying to remind people about the inevitability of socialism debates because I'm like everybody thought it was inevitable in, until like 1942, dude. Like, well, and even even then, like really until the 50s before it was even. Uh, not just a tiny minority anymore. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, like, well people, you know, there were those people that like, uh, I can't think of who, uh, but like, oh yeah. Like Farrell Dobbs said that, uh, well, you know, world war two was supposed to end with a uh, social revolution everywhere. And so that has to happen. So obviously that war is not over. Right. Are the people who, uh, insane take. Yeah. But it was yeah. a common one. The other common was yeah. what actually taken up by like Khrushchev and stuff which is not insane, but was wrong, was that, well, the war just stalled the right. inevitable yeah. final crisis of capitalism. Um, therefore, there should be an economic depression in the 1950s. And when it didn't happen, that's when monopoly capital th- theories pop up all over the fucking place. Yeah, right. Um, but what's interesting, I was reading like the people arguing about socialism or barbarism. And there was a majority of socialists who revected the socialism or barbarism claim because they're like, there's no way it can end in barbarism. It has to end in socialism. Positing two options uh, makes, makes the inevitability impossible. It's weird. Cause I was like going back and reading early how Draper essays and going like, Oh yeah, they did think that. And yeah. like now that's, we're so far removed from that. And that's so obviously wrong. That we just like they never thought that no one ever thought that they literally meant the socialism yeah. wasn't that no they did like all right well, I mean, 40... uh, Marx leaves it not completely ambiguous but he leaves room for uh, doubt as to whether or not it is inevitable yes although but not he definitely this... thought that it was inevitable yeah. he just he also thought he might be a little bit wrong yeah. right um, and. Also, the stuff where he doubts the inevitability is also stuff that we have now that was not commonly read or even widely available in right. like the 1950s. Okay, so, yeah. I always forget. I always forget that. Like, like I'm yeah, not, it's I'm not it, a Marxologist. I don't I don't have all the dates of his publications memorized. Well, it's also weird because you think certain there's a certain other like weirdo key text like the letters of Vera Surlich are like. Uh, the critique of the Greta program, which were which were not published in Marx's lifetime, but were also available really early. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, but we're still getting Marx shit like available in mm-hmm. English for the first time, or even like annotated and collected in German. Like, I mean, yeah, like the fact that we're eventually we're, there's going to be a whole new edition of Capital based on like newly available notes for all three volumes. 
that's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it's, it's as wild as like the fact that we have all these neo and yet like Ben Lewis is steadily translating away like what 90% of the fucking German documents that haven't been translated. And I'm like, I can, you know, my joke, which I actually don't mean as a joke because it's true. It's sometimes easier for me to find Urdu poetry from the ninth century in English than it is for me to find like Espe Day documents from the <laughs> 1920s in yeah, from German, yeah. a related language that a lot of us speak. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I think really like <laughs> ne- the whole Neo Kalskianism thing is really based upon taking the Leninist kind of caricature of, of Kowski and then just deciding that that's good instead of bad. It's not based on like a new investigation of Kowski. You know what I think it is? I think it's trying to reinvent Trotskyism without Trotsky. Yeah. Well, I mean, if okay, yeah, so I think that's true too. Yeah. That's like the cosmonaut strain. Right. Like, absolutely. But there's also the, there's also the blind the DSA strain DSA right? strain. Yeah. Which uh, is just Harringtonism. But like, which is calling just, it Kowskiism, Harringtonism, which is just Bernsteinism, yeah, which right. is, yeah, Harringtonism, <laughs> Harringtonism in the sh- in the sheets, Austrian Marxism in the in the streets, <laughs> like, like, I mean, this is like the whole Boschkars and Kara thing is like we're totally okay with being recuperated, but secretly we're Austrian Marxist and we're gonna have the political revolution and then you're like yeah, but secretly, secretly to even to that you're still actually Harringtonites and everything that. Christopher Lash wrote about Harrington in 1968 actually still applies to you. Yeah. Like, and you also, even though you're all McNairist, you have to ignore everything McNair said about like siding with the right wing of social democracy, much less the center ring of bourgeois power. Like, I mean, it's a whole strong, like, I don't agree with the revolution with McNair's revolutionary strategy book, actually, but there's a whole fucking section about like, how you can't align with like, you can't pull a popular front strategy and it not totally tie you to the right. Like, um, and to be a DSA or you have to completely ignore that. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to this. Um, but it is relevant because these, this, these ideas are part of why we can't like this technonio feudalism thing. Uh, is I think it's coming up is because you need a way to describe, for example, modern monetary economics from a classical Marxist perspective shouldn't work. And to be fair, in some senses, it doesn't work. I'm going to, I know I'm going to piss a lot of people off of that. Um, there is this recent, the, what I find hilarious is MMT is like popular amongst two groups of people, which is like, on one end, you have reformist, socialist, and anarchist who are sympathetic to social democracy in ways I don't even understand. And the in the other is like this: these people who think a strong monetary state's necessary, and they're actually Stalinists, like they're MLs. Um, but they are not like they're MLs, and they think that somehow like modern monetary theory is like maybe equivalent to Dungism, even though. I hate to tell you, but Dungism is close to classical and neoliberalism than it is to any modern monetary Keynesian stuff. So, yeah. um, I mean, that was David Harvey's whole thing. Was that like neoliberalism has made it all the way to China because of Dungism? Right. I mean, however, however exactly right he is, is secondary. Because I think 
he does make a pretty good case that like there are enough identifiable features to to make the case that this is a global phenomenon anyways no no yeah. i think neoliberalism is a global phenomenon and i think ironically Xiism is a break from neoliberalism but it is not a return to classical maoism in any sense but if you are a classical maoist you can look at elements of the G national program and ignore how much dungism is still is still accepted like like for example i mean i, I had a uh a, a a scholar who hates dung from china but like is soft on G, even though Xi has said similar things to Jung about like, we're not returning to um, a non-market economy, you know, and we're not, the state is not going to go into state ownership and management of everything. Um, but, you know, the red new deal, which has been complicated by COVID and people just got talking about um, is in some senses like an admission that China's neoliberalism wasn't working and that they left behind the rural poor and that they had to like do something about it. And I, right. Yeah. One of the things that I'm like, the, one of the reasons why Xi is popular, which I think even Mike Davis miss is not just like his strong, strong man antics. Cause he's not, he's, he's the most boring strong man in the world. Like, 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 come, I mean, he really kind of is, but, yeah. um, but actually it's that, she did do reinvestment into the rural parts of the country that haven't been done since Dung. Like that, but there's other elements like, for example, zero COVID and then the the undoing of zero COVID that actually shows that like, well, yeah, but they didn't even do the, like the, the social democratic healthcare work that who Jim Tao promised. Yeah. Like, and that's, and to say that the second most productive power on earth is not in the capacity to do like Norway style social democracy. What do you think communism is going to need, man? Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> when I say second, actually it's the first most productive power. It's like the second richest. Yeah. Um, they uh, have created TikTok, however. Oh yeah, yeah, and and the right wingers, um, the right wingers love to point out that they don't allow their children on TikTok, which I also kind of like. Well, the right wingers have a point. <laughs> they do have a point. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm like, it's I, funny like, because I, I tell people like I, I I don't use TikTok because I I could feel my attention sp- attention span getting shorter like as I scroll. Plus, it's a huge time suck. And then I, and then they'll go like, oh yeah, absolutely. My attention span is totally shot now because of TikTok. I need everything to be in like short, digestible chunks, otherwise I can't pay attention to it. And yeah, I like TikTok. It's funny. And I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> when people complain about me doing 15 minute explainers is too long, and I'm like, fuck, what do you want me to do, man? Like, yeah, I, like, I, I think YouTube is like taking a serious hit lately because of. Uh, it, people are not interested in quote unquote long form videos anymore. By that we mean fifteen minutes. Yeah, which is just one of the most depressing things I've ever heard. Because I, I don't know, man. It's it's just depressing. It, it, my response to the people who are like literacy isn't necessary was like, then why is media literacy also going down against every generational cohort? And it's compounded in the young because not only do they uh, 
do they have the same problems as like boomers and God, you should have never given boomers computers for fuck's yeah, sake. That was like the worst idea. But but also they've never seen anyone model any other kinds of literacy for them, so they don't even have anything to retreat to. Yeah, and like, boomer and uh also computer literacy is a problem uh among oh, younger yeah, they like only they, know how to use the swipe box. Like, yeah, they yeah. know how to use apps, and that's it. Like, uh, I th- I was reading an article. They can't code. They can't. They can't use a fucking keyboard. Like, yeah, there was an article in like Business Insider or something like that about having to retrain, uh, you know, Zoomers that are going into the job market to train them to to use basic computer programs that like millennials are well versed in. You know, um, yeah. yeah. So it's just like. They, they don't know how to use Windows, which is insane to me because Windows is the easiest shit in the world to use. Oh, yeah. But it's also they don't they, they, they don't. I have kids who are on online schooling who try to do their entire online schooling on their iPhone. Yeah, it's yeah. Wow. Um, so back to the text what well, we sound like old men yelling at clouds. Um, <laughs> well, I really do. Most of the time, anyway. Um, there, we can return to the above-mentioned disputes of the nature of the transition from feudalism to capitalism within the Marxist traditions. There are two mutually exclusive ways to think about this. One sees the capitalist system as driven solely by its internal dynamics of competition and exploitation, with political expropriation lying firmly outside of its boundaries, which I think is wrong. Yes. Actually, what's funny is I've read this and I'm like, both these traditions are wrong like, yeah. like i was just the other the the on the this reading capital accumulation driven solely by clean economic means of surplus extraction uh slavery is hard to explain the need for external colonies is hard to explain and all this shit when you look at this yeah the existence of extrogenous expropriating enabled processes violence racism dispossession carbonization is not denied but they should not be analytically. But they should be analytically bracketed out as non-capitalist extras. Doug Lane does this. Um, uh, they they may have been abetted by particular capitalists in their individual efforts to appropriate surplus value, but they stand outside the process of capitalist accumulation as such. Uh, interestingly, Marx does not do this consistently. Like sometimes he sounds like he does, but I've been reading his writings on the Civil War and he doesn't like. Like he doesn't argue that slavery is non-capitalist. For example. Well, that's yeah. why that's why there's actually three ways you can think about it. You know, mm-hmm. one of the ways is just too complicated. Strict. Yeah, to be very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in in Capital and like the intro, right? He talks about how the hunting of black skins and is necessary for the the buildup of like Western capitalism. Right. Yeah. I mean, he he includes slavery as the main reason. Or one of the main reasons that the United States was able to build its wealth. Oh, yeah. Which is um, funny because now there are books coming out that talk all about how uh, actually be- – because this idea that slavery was external capitalism has gotten gained so much traction on the left, uh, you now have books coming out that are basically just reasserting what Marx said. Yeah, but this, saying like, that like Marxists are the bad guys here because we didn't realize. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. To, yeah. to be fair, there's a lot of people in the Marxist tradition that ignore that part of Marx's argument. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, and and there are reasons to do that. And one of the reasons to do that's in Marx himself, the footnote where he says that like we know that capitalism begins in the Italian city states because they got rid of serfdom first. Yes. Yeah. Which I'm like, 
yeah, that sounds like it's part of this first thing, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, it's, it's because you it's a misconstruing American slavery with serfdom is I think a problem that uh, a lot of Marxist writers from the 20th century make. Right. Like it's um, chattel slavery in the South is absolutely nothing like medieval feudalism. Yeah. But it's actually right. also not that much like most forms of antique slavery either. Even no, though, not at all. Yeah. You could, I, you could buy manumission in antique slavery. Right. Yeah. It's actually a unique form of slavery. It's unique to early capitalism actually. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and it's based on race, which is something that slavery never was in the ancient world. Right. right. All right. So continuing from Morozov, there are no laws of motion of capital that could be deuced about them, them being the externalities such as racism, slavery, etc. In this view, even if coercive force of political sphere is ultimately necessary to sustain private property and the process of, appro- of appropriation, economic needs supplies that immediate compulsion the forces of the worker to transfer surplus labor to the capitalist. The other option, analytically messier but intuitively more convincing, is to acknowledge that capitalism, at least the historical capitalism that we know, not the purest capitalism of abstract models, is unthinkable without all those extraneous processes. One does not have to deny the centrality of exploitation to the capital system to see how racism or patriarchy help create the conditions of its possibility. Yeah. Would a capitalist system in the global north have developed as it did if cheap resources had not been methodologically appropriated from the global south? Absolutely not. However, we can get to, yeah. you know, the problems with this view, too. Unlike the case of labor exploitation, these historical dynamics and the trade-off pre- present within them cannot be reduced to a neat formula which, in Marx's own writings, would describe a firm's decision to automate its labor force. But such messiness doesn't make these dynamics any less real or any less constitutive of historical capitalism. I can tell you how uh, Morozov um, thinks is, is, is the more likely answer by the way he framed this debate. And yeah. I, I, I do yeah. think he's right, and these are the two dominant tendencies. It's just both these tendencies seem to me to be to have serious limitations even with even even from terms of Marxology, not just in general history, right? Yeah. Like um, the differences between these approaches surface in two landmark and paradigm-defining debates about the origins of capitalism and the nature of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. I will point out that both these debates happened after we gave up on the inevitability of socialism, which I think is actually interesting to think about. I think it actually matters. Yeah, yeah I mean, because you kind of can't see another time when it would have come up. Before. Right. Um, first, the 1940s Dobbs-Sweezy debate, and then, the, and then the 1947 and 1982 Brenner debate, which again, like I find interesting that part of the Brenner debate, I don't think it's actually explicitly about G. A. Cohen's uh, uh, Karl Marx, uh, Karl Marx's theory of history of defense, because I don't think even that was written yet, but it the Brenner debate actually happens in that context and people pick sides partly in responding to people like Cohen, which I think is really interesting. Um, Debating the relative importance of a rapidly expanding world system of trade versus shifting class and property relations initially in England as the main factor for the emergence of capitalism. As an interesting side note, I think that the Brenner people are more, in line with Marx on what defines capitalism 
but that the Wallerstein slash Generous Banerjee slash a bunch of other people are actually more in line with Marx's own theories about where capitalism begins. Because Marx actually thinks the most mature capitalist country is England, but he thinks it began in the Italian city-states. And we know that from a footnote in Capital Volume 1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Blah, blah, blah. Those discussions feature many of the fascinating tangents. One particular is crucial for deciphering the theoretical foundations of a more uh, serious formulation of, of the techno thesis, the centrality of primitive accumulations to the origins as well as subsequent developments of capitalism. In some Marxian accounts, including that of Emmanuel Wallerstein, I do like the fact that Morozov realizes that all these people are not classically construed orthodox marxist um yeah they're just marxian yeah primitive accumulation refers to the use of extra economic political means to capture and transfer surplus under the label of unequal exchange from pure to richer lands are route wallerstein puts it from the periphery to the core i think you have to focus on the periphery to the core because wallerstein is actually pretty clear that periphery and core dynamics don't just happen between nations but also happen within them yeah um yeah yeah because i actually i I, I actually think that part of Wallerstein is actually ignored by a lot of people who like world systems theory. <laughs> but anyway, the origins of capitalism cannot be understood without taking into account this ability of the core to expropriate the surplus of the whole global economy. This is what explains why capitalism emerged and flourished where it did. The exploitation, never fully proletarianized, of wage labor certainly boosted the fortunes of capitalists in the core, but that is only part of the story. Thus, this is also why world system theorists aren't third worldless because they do think that first world workers are exploited. Yeah. Um, thus to focus exclusively on exploitation and ignore the fact that the core peripheral dynamics of unequal exchange and primitive accumulation are still present today is to misunderstand the nature of capitalism. Brenner charged Wallerstein's analysis with techno determinism, downplaying class relations and the role of surplus labor rather than productivity as a systemic feature of capitalism. Which I actually think Britter's kind of right about, even though I think world systems thesis is, I think world systems dynamics is explanatory, but you do have to explain, for example, why productivity rates are so much higher in the developed world. And then when you get this, a theorist like, say, John Smith now, and explain like how they've tried to maintain that even by like legal arbitrage, like making sure that the developed world can't become as product as, as productive. Um, yeah. But none of that really fits the purely you're just purely sucking stuff out of the highly productive, uh, you know, third world. And I think it's also interesting, frankly, the, and Morozov doesn't talk about this, but that Wallerstein and Brenner are on different sides of the Trotsky Mao debates in the post new left sectarian debates. That really does matter. And it's framing a lot of this. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's not just, you can't just ignore it. In fact, it's the reason why it's happening. Right. Brenner argued, uh, Wallerstein's exchange-based accounts, Brenner argued, were based on a, on a staple of neo-Smithian Marxism, ignoring what Marx really meant by the concept of a primitive accumulation. It was to be understood, in Marx's word, as a process of divorcing the producer from the means of production, which opened the door to wage labor and exploitation, and came to re- replace expropriation as a means of ready-made goods by semi-autonomous peasants. And he, actually, Brenner and Ellen Morgan Woods go so far as to explain, like, that's why England had a comparative advantage over Spain, because Spain put all of its reinvestment into expro- expropriation, a.k.a. 
the military to take shit. Whereas yeah, England right. did that, but most of its reinvestment actually went into increased productivity, aka the Industrial Revolution. That's why the Industrial Revolution happens in England and not Spain. Which yeah, is right. what I've always believed. Right. Which I think is I think that's the strongest element of the Brit of the Brenner Woods argument. It's like, damn, that's pretty convincing, actually. Like it's... because the Spanish Empire is bigger than the English one. I know people forget this, but like New Spain went all the way from like uh the philippines through most of the americas like, yeah like it's, it stops like in oregon and otherwise it goes all the way down to like yeah the bottom of argentina right i mean with just, the exception of the the tip of of uh, brazil which was on the other side of the line of the treaty of tordesillas right right which is why brazil is portuguese <laughs> what um, an insane treaty right the treaty <laughs> yes. of tordesillas is like you know Portugal and Spain, two little little countries on the Iberian Peninsula, and the that Pope all got together new. that are both new <laughs> get together to defy the entire world up. Yeah, with and, the the backing of the Pope. Yeah, the Pope was like, "Oh, that new country that they're unified, but they're Catholic, so they get to have everything." Yeah. <laughs> it's and I'm like, but I mean, you do have to explain, like, if it's just, if it's just purely extractive resources, why do the English outcompete the Spanish and the Portuguese? Because the Spanish and the Portuguese have more lands, more resources, and more slaves. Like, they do. Um, you know, they kind of build the transatlantic economy more or less with the English kind of like waltzing in late, and. Interestingly, I think people forget this about why, you know, some of the argument about Germany being the capitalist nation where everything's going to happen is, is, you know, German chauvinism. But some of it is about the fact that Germany doesn't have a colonial import uh, to, like, take the pressure off of its proletariat the way that right. the England and France and mm -hmm. the United States do. And yeah. that's why it's considered as the one you can you that can flip over first because oh it's a developed nation that has it's trying to be colonial but it sucks at it it came out the game too late it unified too late it can't really do it yeah um, but it is it is super developed and it's super innovative because it also can't be like those slack imperialists it's got to actually build shit so uh, <laughs> well know, also Hegel, the Hegel is from there so yeah that means the, it's definitely better. Right. Yeah, and, and then there's also German chauvinism, which is part of this, like even in Marx's case. I, I love reading Marx talk about the English because it's just funny. But because, you know, like Anglo mind rot is something that we throw around today. But I'm like, yeah, Marx definitely threw it around at the time. <laughs> it's basically like, look, even the English are getting this right. They're the fucking English. This island has rotted their brains and they're doing better than you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I maintain that he's right that Anglo mind rot is absolutely a thing, and we all inherited a case of it. Um, perhaps. Yeah. Um, the origins of uh, capitalism cannot be understood as taking into account the ability of core. Oh, right. Are we talking about that? Um, as Brenner put it in a later essay, the stage known as primitive accumulation was nothing but the bringing into being of a social property relations constitutive of capital. This included pruning of force and violence, aka basically the enclosures. 
Right. Right. Um, yeah. But the the role of primitive accumulation was very limited. Its dynamics could not be confused with those proper non-primitive capitalist accumulations. What what was that limited role? According to Brenner, primitive accumulations served to solely to break up the politically institute merge uh, merger of land, labor, and technology, which characterized the feudal system and have prevented these three essential factors of production being put into more productive use. Something that would have could be corrected once they were inserted into a capitalist logic of profit-making. Put bluntly, Brenner's analysis of feudalism proposed that it gave everyone incentive to slack off. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, a little bit. Um, In the absence of competitive market pressures, there's, there's no need to worry about the rationalization of the production process. Also like the one thing, one of my arguments about why, why even though feudal, as we talked about in our feudalism series, feudalism is a problematic category. It's hard to find one thing, which is, yes. But one thing that you can say is the various things we call feudal relations were like no growth are very low growth ninety yes. percent of the time. <laughs> like, um, and that does end with capital like and and to me when people are like well there's no you know it's all been continuity i'm like well there is a lot of continuity between capital there's probably more continuity between capital and late medieval period than any marxist wants to admit i will i will grant you that but there's a substantive difference in something because they weren't productive like not the way we were no and you know that's what that's what protestantism would have said about Catholicism at the time right. as well. And the, the, during the early growth of capitalism is that Catholicism tied to feudal relations is lazy. Uh, lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I'm here to defend laziness. <laughs> uh, cursory look at capital volume one, however, reveres the more ambiguity on the subject of primitive accumulation than Brenner initially lets on. Chapter 26, Mark criticizes Adam Smith's naive conception of primitive accumulation, a previous accumulation, certainly backs up Benner's claim. He uses it very eloquently in attacking Wallerstein. But then in chapter 31, Mark says something much more congruent with Wallerstein's own line of analysis, famously writing that. It's always, I always love these capital debates because capital is such an interesting book. And if you take stuff out of context, you can make all kinds of arguments from it, kind of like the Bible. <laughs> it's exactly um, like the Bible, yeah. <laughs> the, discovery of gold and, the discovery of silver in, in America, the extrapolation, enslavement, and achievement of the minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning back, uh, uh, the turning back of Africa into a war and commercial hunting of black skins, you just mentioned that, yeah. signals the rosy dawn of an era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief momenta of primitive accumulation. The chapter leaves no doubt about the intricate con- connection between violence waged in the name of forced transfer and the origins of capitalism. Marx couldn't be more explicit here. The veiled slavery of the wage worker in Europe needed for its pedestal slavery pure and simple in the new world. It's hard to see how this fa- this account fits this account of primitive accumulation in the Brennerian story of the divorce between producers and their means of production in the English countryside. There are similar ambiguities in Marx's discussion of whether these violent practices of conquest and looting stop at the stage of primitive accumulation or whether they, thus also primitive accumulation, continue to alongside capitalist accumulation proper based on exploitation. 
or indeed whether if primitive accumulation itself is a thing of the past, there is nothing less ongoing about the process or disposition that exists alongside the exploitation. I kind of, you know, what's interesting about this debate between the world system theories and political Marxism is like Lenin had actually kind of worked out an answer to these contradictions and are really Bukharin had kind of worked out an answer to these contradictions in his writings on imperialism already. Like, um, we can come back to that, but I actually think that's interesting because one of the things that's interesting about late 20th century is like, guys, we've had answers for this before and we're just bracketing them out because they're inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember what, I mean, I, I guess I can't exactly like, Imagine what you're referring to, though, in the Lenin or Bukharin as an the, answer. The answer is state capitalism starts to develop as a as a crisis of pri- uh, private profit, uh, profits declining. So new methods of accumulation have to be that are from prior epochs have to be reincorporated oh, in yeah. capital to keep profits yeah. up, a.k.a. Yeah, the whole like super profits problem. Yeah. Yeah. Like. So that's why there's always a tendency back to these quote extra capitalist accumulations because they're necessary. They're like the reversions come out of the logic of capitalism itself, mm-hmm. which to me it's kind of a. If you think about what 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 Morozov is saying, the two poles are well, like both Leninism and classical Marxism actually negotiated those poles already. Yeah. Okay, that's true. Like, and we just dropped it. Like. For what, and I think we dropped it for reasons that I think are are interesting. Um, we drop the reasons why they be dropped by the 1950s is like the development of the state no longer makes it look like we can risk the kinds of wars that Lenin predicts as a way to restore capital profitability. Right. So the two options seem to be like the monopoly capital thesis, you know, which is the idea, and and Dodd Sweezy, which is interesting because he doesn't discuss. He mentions that defining is super important. But Morozov actually doesn't go into that. <laughs> like, What's interesting is that that this happens at the same time that like the constant fear of war is like it's like ever present, right? It's like you you do think that there is going to be a war or even many wars, but also you think that there can't be at least not for that reason, right? Well, I think people constantly fear proxy war, but direct conflict becomes impossible. Yeah, okay, that's true. Like, and the reason why is the the strength of the the first world states, which I do think Marx and even Lenin didn't foresee happening. Yeah. I mean, there was no uh nobody had split the atom yet. Right. And Bukharin's Bukhar, interesting is uh in his book on imperialism, uh which Lenin's kind of cribbing in his, you know, polemic on it. Yeah. Is he's noticing how much the state's having to get involved in capitalist production and like and it's some of that is actually copacetic with what Lenin and Engels predict in social in, in socialism utopian and scientific, where they talk about like, oh well, the common stock company is gonna be part of the basis for socialism. Yeah. But then there's also all this immiseration stuff. And basically Bukharin and uh, and Lenin are kind of squaring the circle without doing the whole like Bernstein revisionism thing. Um, and what's interesting about that is like it, it perfectly describes what happens in world war one and world war two, but doesn't describe anything after it. Like, 
Yeah, I mean, because I guess they really just couldn't even conceive of a, of a different world unless it was a socialist world. Right. The, the only way to avoid basically world, his, you know, world conflagration through this interimperial conflict would be a socialist world. Yeah. But like their project itself and the fact that it like doesn't immediately take off and become a world phenomena and there's no way for it to do so actually, unfortunately means that they're wrong. I mean, yeah. Well, in uh, this, there's not anybody else who is connected in, in enough of a way to have that kind of influence. Since right. Then. Like, you know, whatever, there have been smart people in the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, but they weren't smart people at the heads of actual revolutionary political projects, though. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, this is this. This, I think, is something that like, David Graeber fairly makes fun of Marxists for. You start off you start off with great thinkers and revolutionary. You move the statesmen and you end up with professors. And like and like, so you name your your, your early tendencies are like the founders of revolutionary tendency to traditions. Your, your middle tendencies are the founders of states. And then your 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 late tendencies are like Althusser versus the British school of humanist Marx. It's just like I mean, it's, like, a, oh, it's a pretty damning indictment. Kind of, it, kinda, it yeah. does kind of stick, man. <laughs> like, um, anyway, yeah, actually, like other than the professors, I can't even think of another another name. Like by the sixties, I can't think of another name. Of like any important Marxist intellectual who is not, you know, a professor. Mm-mm. No, even even the other tendencies, like I think about oh, communization. Nope, that's mostly out of universities too. Like even though it's like, yeah, I was even talking about this with Hal Draper. I was like, how to to claim that Hal Draper was an organic intellectual of the working class is both true. It's a little stilted because he, he was able to do a lot of his research. He was he did have a BA, which was rare in the thirties. Yeah, and uh, he did do a lot of his research because he just had a job at the Berkeley Library. Mm-hmm. But it's also crazy to me that like you don't expect a guy with a BA at a job at a library to be translating Soviet documents and then going into the deep history of Marxism from his side gig. Like, no. you, I have a hard time uh, as a person who does similar shit. Actually, I have a hard time imagining that because I'm like, God, I can't imagine trying to do that without the internet. Like all like the only thing I could think of is that like every single other thing that in the intellectual landscape is also different without the internet, including like, you know, you don't, he didn't exist in a time whenever you needed to be on the internet to distract yourself. That's like, true. But the, he also the ability to focus. It. Yeah. It's just different. I, I agree with you. The ability to focus is different, but it's still like, no, you couldn't get fucking scholars to get access to some of that stuff that he was writing about in the 1940s. Yeah, that's true too. Like I'm like reading these debates. Uh, like it, he's got a book that I really want to throw at the neo Cults who really love bringing up revolutionary defeatism all the time. When he talks about, there's a book that Draper wrote called the myth of revolutionary defeatism, which goes into how much of revolutionary defeatism is actually constructed, not by Lenin, but by Zinoviev and people like Zinoviev trying to mystify something that was more immediate. And I'm oh. like, Ooh, I want to read that. I'm going to write this down. It's it's, it is, it is published as a quote pamphlet by Merck month in review. And by pamphlet, we mean 200 page book. Oh yeah. <laughs> like A nice short little pamphlet. Yeah. 
Um, you know, as opposed to his, you know, six or five volumes on Karl Marx's theory of uh, of revolutionary history, or, or which are all like this thick, they're they're enormous, right? Um, although it did it did make me feel good that we could talk about Marx having a shit lib period because he really did. <laughs> um, uh, like when he like his early 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 stuff when he's in university, like. Where he's talking about the progressive role of British imperialism. Right. But also like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a. Yeah. It's, it's definitely among a, a couple of other things that are like really, really just unfortunate. I mean, lots of us had shit lib periods. Here's the problem. You know, if I have a critique of Marxism, actually. I mean, like, I was in the ISO. Yeah, true. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> you couldn't even pick a good third campus organization no um it was the one that was around <laughs> man that's true. That's true. i also i i don't know i can't really think of a good third campus organization so yeah but then i'm know. like well okay so you could have stayed in the sparts as far as the orthodox trots are or the grantites the grantites being soft except when you get to weird shit like it really matters if you accept the big bang or not um, oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't even. Then, I don't even think I actually encountered them until like 2009. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about the Grand Tides, we really mean the Alan Woodite Grand Tides. So, like, they're kind of um, yeah. That yeah, the Alan Wood people are the uh... wait. That's Socialist Alternative now, right? That's what's no. That's here. IMT. It's International IMT. Yeah, yeah, that's IMT. that's the Peter Taft people. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, and Socialist Alternative is, I guess, they're also that because they're from a similar split, right? Um, the militant, the socialist yeah. alternative are interesting because of the Trotskyist tendencies in America. They are the only one, like the ISO, before it became Cliffite to join up with the IS tendency, is really Shackmanite. Um, yes, you know, uh, early Shackmanite as opposed to late Shackmanite, but it's. Like its third campism joins up with the British Cliffite tendency, and then right, it merges yeah. with it. It merges with it. Um, whereas, like the militant was literally franchised here from the British. <laughs> yeah, that's so. That's like that's literally the, true. Yeah, yeah. They're the because they have they're the only Trotsky, and they have their splits too. But they're the only Trotskyist organization that you can't trace back to the canon faction of the CPUSA. Yeah. Um, which they're the only one left with of any substance. In the that's United really States true as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, arguably, the whole DSA is a Harringtonite deviation of a Shackmanite deviation from the Shackmanite tendency. Well, yeah, that is absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, but as far as anyone who's conscious of what they what they are and where they come from, right? Then, yeah, I mean, because yeah. we. Because otherwise, we would we want to talk about other Trotskyist splinter groups. We'd have to consider the Workers' World Party and the. Uh, I do. I, yeah. I actually think the be- ironically the best honest groups in America are all fucking trots. Yeah. Well, what's the uh, other one? The uh, the PSL. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they have origins in in. Uh, I mean, my my favorite thing is it's very clear to me that the PSL regularly edits him. Sam Marcy's Wikipedia page to minimize how much of a Trotskyist he was, even though he was a ta- he was a quote tanky. 
Which right. yeah. also Marcyism is where I start pointing out that like, look, that's where you start seeing that's where people like Peter Kimeho arguing like, hey, Maoist and look, we both had critiques of Stalin. We can get back together because, you know, like we're both critiquing like your critique of capitalist rotors and our critique of of deformed worker state slash slash bureaucratic collectivism slash state capitalism are actually very similar. Like, uh, also, none of us are coherent any fucking more. Uh, that's, that's the gateway drug. Right. What, full, just unapologetic Stalinism. Well, th- that's the funny thing, right? Like, I think it's interesting because the first part of that, that, that that's actually why the McNairites and Neokowskiites actually rem- admire Sam Marcy. Because Marcy's Marcy's actually right about that, but mm-hmm. what actually happens when you do that is it's not just that you become unapologetic MLs like Marxist Leninism's become popular, but like, do any of those fuckers actually know what Marxist Leninists historically believed? No, you know how many Marxist Leninists like tell me how bad the Popular Front is, and I, I'm like, well, you do realize that that's like your tendency, right? Yeah, like, like well, it's because they're criticizing it from a Trotskyist perspective. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, true. accidentally, that's what they're doing, right? Yeah, it's just—it's like you guys are all stuck in the past. Um, yeah. but anyway, for Brenner and the school of political Marxism that formed around him and Ellen Mil- uh, Americans Woods uh, in the later years, there was no ambiguity. Capitals emerged and expanded at such tremendous pace because of, because of a number of historical processes converged in a way to force capitalists to accumulate via innovation. Which that's the part of their argument that I think is true. Right? Like, because you do have to explain why the other extracted powers didn't do that. Yeah. And I yeah. don't think Wallerstein does actually successfully answer that, even though I think Wallerstein has a point on a whole lot of other dynamics that Brenner just seems to be blind to. Yeah, like, it's almost like they're both kind of right. And they're right. also both and they're also both very wrong. It's like if they if they if their powers combined, no. Um <laughs> well, it's like if they were in some sort of a formation that they were disciplined, that they had to like work together on something and they had to produce something instead of just you know publish as academics. Yeah, man, that's what I always say. What if like Trotsky and Bukharin and what if they were all in the same party? You know, here's the pro- that problem. Would have been crazy. Though. You guys, yeah, they could they could like all, make a Russian all... revolution. <laughs> yeah, this is your nostalgia speaking. Not gonna yeah, lie, definitely. like, <laughs> like, because I don't think is I, mean, I we, we say this as if they could have. Yeah, I know, but we say <laughs> we're joking, but you're not joking. Like we know that there's like oh, if there's a party, but we can't. The problem is everyone's like oh, if we just bring the party back, these people did try to bring the party back. That's the thing. Like they yeah. weren't just academics, particularly when we talk about someone like Errol Americans Woods and they did work together on projects. Like they were all involved with monthly review in some way. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, honestly, be- like the, the party as a clearinghouse for ideas where everyone gets together and like hashes things out because I mean, what, what are the stakes here? Right? Like mm-hmm. the stakes in this argument are, are very low. This is very academic. But it's funny because the states in this argument, if we see this, if both these groups are like debating in the monthly review in the 70s, right? Yeah. Uh, why are they doing that? Because how Draper is saying, hey, look, 
you guys try to replicate the party, but you get stuck in the sectarian consciousness. We have to replicate the pre-party formations of like the international and its intellectual. Right. The, uh, yeah. the Iskris model is what he's trying right. to, to uh, reconstitute at that point. Right. Not the SP day, but the stuff that leads up to it. Yeah. But this is what you get with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like eventually you get a purely academic conversation. Or you get Jacobin yeah. Magazine. Uh, sure. Uh, do you think that is not a purely academic <laughs> conversation? No, I, don't, uh, no, I, I, I think it would have been better if it was a purely academic No, Jacobin Magazine is absolutely the, the foundation of the activist wing of the DSA. Oh, my God. I, I, I don't drink much anymore, my friend. But, <laughs> um, what's funny... Uh, I'm, I, people think I, I'm saying this to like tote myself as being awesome, and maybe there, there's a little bit of that. But but it's funny when I'm like, three years after I saw something, it shows up in Jacobin. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because they're copying me, but because their hour of Minerva flies at dusk three days later. Yeah. Um, like, my dusk was a couple days before their dusk. Um. <laughs> You're in a different time zone. You're in Japan. Yeah, yeah I'm in Japan, and they're, <laughs> they're like, on the east coast of the United States, <laughs> right? They're in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> at one point, that was literally true. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, but it is sort of, it is sort of like, for example, I was I was bemoaning today, and this is actually related to this, um, like how I saw Occupy, right? And like I saw that at the time. I was writing on a blog. You can go look it up in 2011 and 2012 about how Occupy was not the beginning of something new, but the end of like Gen X leftism and like the ab busters Z magazine, um, alter globalization left like that. It, that it had reached its capacity and informed up with things that it couldn't really control. And that was, that was it. And it's clearing it out. And that's going to be, that failure is going to be the birth of something new. Um, and what is so funny is like now, 10 years later, everyone says that shit. And I'm like, I said it at the goddamn time. Like, and you guys got mad at me and told me I was being too mean to occupy. Like, I mean, now- we, we kind of said that too, even though our organization, like the ISO was very much so oriented towards trying to turn occupy into something that it wasn't. All well, the I mean, it was kind were. of, or, it was really, it was oriented toward <clears throat> showing up and attending Occupy until it stopped existing. Oh, and to recruit people out of it actually is what it, yeah. what it really was. But with the sort of window with like the wallpapering of it being trying to turn it into something else, but yeah. really it was just trying to get new recruits to, so, to feed the, uh, the rotating, you know, cast or what it, the revolving door, right. To feed the revolving door of members. So I got to ask you, um, I think I realized that there's like three caucuses that are basically ISO SALT collaborative caucuses, more or less, in the DSA. Um, are there? Yeah. Bread and Circuit. I mean, Roses. Um, <laughs> uh, Tempest and something else. But they're, they're a shit ton of ISO people, plus usually larger, large parts of the SALT split that went into the, uh, to the DSA are also in those groups. But what I find kind of funny is, like, what they're doing now is, like, uh, 
they're basically trying to like they're all the worst tendencies that existed in the ISO are magnified in the caucuses for the most part. Yeah. In the DSA. Like it's not even like like, yeah, there's a lot of concern over labor and building a labor party out of bread and roses, for example. But like their means of doing that is like by working as former staffers and and like being highly involved with like the I, the AFL I, uh, CIO leadership. It's just which I think is actually actually kind of a even worse than yeah. what they did in in the ISO. Yeah, so. definitely. And the other funny thing about it is uh, the 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 NPCs all based off of these caucuses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but these caucuses are basically microsex. I don't think I think someone told me that none of them are larger than four hundred people. Yeah. So I'm like, I would be oh. surprised if they were even that large. So I'm like, oh, so they're microsex within a larger conglomeration that is downstream from the Democratic Party, but also which basically funnels a lot of money from. The... I hate this. This is going to sound really cynical. Um, and this is off topic, but we've been more loose today. Yeah. Um, um, basically, the DSA's 80-20 split means that the radicals of most of the country are sending most of their money to the two richest areas of the country to do pro- progressive battling in those mm-hmm. regions, which is California and New York. Yeah. Does that that should bother people? <laughs> like it really should. I mean, but I don't. I don't think it does, like at all. It's really weird to be like nostalgic for the um, the sect world of the early aughts, and it's it's not comfortable at all. It feels bad to miss that. Oh, it, it, it is. It, it is like missing being abused in a particular way. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. for, for one, I I think that like at least the sect world back then are neither Washington nor Moscow slogan would have actually been neither Washington nor Moscow and not neither Washington nor Moscow, but actually, yeah, just Washington. Or actually, yeah, just <laughs> Moscow, depending. Or actually, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, well, as far as <laughs> former ISO people are concerned, it's no, actually, yeah, just Washington. No, yeah, they're, they're, they're oh, yeah, they're, they're third campus for the, for the third campus for Raytheon right now. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fucking it's insane. It's nutty. Um, yeah. Like the whole Tempest collective, quote unquote, if that's what they're called, I think. Oh, boy. It's funny, though, because uh, the the reverse. Also, people get mad at me for being at their campus when I'm like, well, you know, we actually good. Like, there's even a third camp we could root for here. Like, if you really want to root for a major power, you could root for China actually showing up and like forcing everybody to be adults. Yeah. Like. Like you, like you could, it's a yeah. possibility. Like, <laughs> well, and the United States is already setting up posturing against China to tell them to fuck off in case they do try to do that. They've already tried to do it. I like, know. <laughs> because this, I mean, in case they really try in earnest, because right. there are things that they could do. I mean, part of the problem that you have is like, guys, you know, I, I. Belton Road may have got scuttled anyway, but this has made sure mm-hmm. that Belton Road is a. If it continues, it is at a. It is no longer trying to be the super counter Keynesian Marshall Plan initiative that it was. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I say this because I'm often 
like a year ago, I was often arguing with like pro Chinese people, and I'm like, where are you guys now? Yeah. Like, like well, those are all this because they're all pro Russia people now, right? But it's like, and I get there are factions in China that are, but like I've always pointed out to people, like China didn't even try to suppress the anti Russian, um, uh, you know, rebellions within certain classes within its in a society because it's it's pretty clear that from the party's interests, like this isn't great for them. Mm-mm. Yeah, not um, and pretending like it is really just plays into a narrative that the United States is trying to push in order to increase belligerency against China, right? And thus justify, you know, some crazy new Cold War over the Straits of Taiwan. Exactly, it's it's to justify military buildup. It's like the United States doesn't actually want to go to war with Taiwan. I mean, with China, what it wants to do is posture for war forever and keep spending more and more and more money on military buildup. Right, but. Yeah. The- then you have all these people downstream of Biden who also think they could get social democratic goodies if you use China as a scare tactic, like the way that they were that like the Keynesians used the Soviet Union. Right. Yeah. Military Keynesianism. Right. But also, I mean, but like in in the Fordist time period, they did this too. Like, yes, you have, yeah, to, you have to keep the workers at the table because they can perform a strong mass movement. And then what do we have? We'll have the Soviet Union. So you have to play ball. Right. <laughs> like. Like they're they're they're, I, I'm not you know I'm not saying that that's I'm not saying that's the only causal factor because there's also like Germany and Japan aren't really competition for America. There's a whole lot going on there, but like you know the success of the Marshall Plan ironically made and you know uh, actual competition from former enemies within the Allied sphere. Like, mm-hmm. uh, but. There's also the whole like, yeah, by 1970, though, we all know the Soviet Union, like, they're never going to get with China. Those guys are fighting, and China's half on our side half the time. So, like, oh, God, we don't need you. We don't need to care about the world. I mean, like, I think, like, the Sino Soviet split, I think, even has an effect on being like the why workers have no say in deindustrialization. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it, like, all that shit's related, man. It's, it's, I'm not saying anything's causal, but it's all related. All right. Yeah. Um, Dude, we are so good at getting distracted and going off on enormous <laughs> oh, tangents. Oh yeah, this is what we this is what we do. I mean, um, if you're listening to this, you're already expecting this, so we don't need to apologize for it. We we actually. I mean, that's the reason why it gets episode. to be a series instead of a single instead of a single episode about one essay. It's a series about one essay. Yeah. This this is actually strangely prescient to the topic at hand, even yeah. if it is tangential. Um. Weirdly, it is because the the stuff that leads to now is actually the context for these debates, and yeah, they right. come back up. Like the Brenner, the Brenner Woods Wallerstein debates have actually been in the background of the debates about what the new, new, new or the millennial left should do. Like yeah. Wallerstein and Brenner, even though Brenner's ancient and Wallerstein is now dead are like the two orientations outside of like trying to resurrect the course of GA Cohen or something um, are trying to relish are trying to resurrect the course of the second international, which is the other common thing Yeah, um, that people have used to understand the situation. And by the way, all the people who are resurrecting the course of the second international are also using like they're picking sides in the Wallerstein Brenner frameworks. Like there are other frameworks, but we, have 
like I told you, like some of this feels like like some of this feels like, yeah, did Bacarn and Lennon not happen? Like you know, like we we talked about this before in a far smarter way. Like Yeah. Um but anyway. Um I I I guess we actually did finish the section about that set this up. Um I think Marazov is clearly kind of on the side of Wallerstein. Um, oh yeah, definitely. But I think it's interesting because I, I still haven't seen people explain to me how the Wallerstein analysis deals with, with Spain. Right. Um, I think that like Banerjee, who I keep bringing up in theory as history actually does try to deal with Spain and comes up with a similar answer to Wallerstein, but then also kind of argues that Spain was kind of capitalist too, like against Brenner. And I was like, yeah, but why did it win? Like, why did England win? Like, because it didn't just win on military grounds. Like, yeah, you can't argue that. It also outcompeted the Spanish. And if it's just about extrapolation, then you can't explain that. Because both sides are extrapolating, but uh, the Spanish had more slaves, which I know everyone forgets. But yeah. The Spanish had more slaves. I mean, part part of that was before anyone starts to think of English capitalism as being less rapacious and moral. It's because the Spanish had more uh, arable land than the English did. The Spanish had more arable land. And also the Spanish had more indigenous people to enslave, whereas the English tried to enslave indigenous people that had already been, uh, frankly, decimated by diseases brought over by the Spanish. Right. So, like, they just didn't have the populations in the east coast of the United States to use indigenous uh, slave labor. And had to thus had to get in on the Portuguese Congo trade and then take it over. I just, just read a book about uh, Asian slaves in the Spanish Empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, they, in order to consider all of their territory part of the Spanish crown, legally, they had to make... Asians and Indians uh, subjects, which means they could no longer be slaves. And they did that once they started getting a steady flow of black slaves. Mm. It's very interesting. I'd, I'd never read anything about that before. Yeah, that's not something I've ever thought about before. Yeah. That's a, that actually is interesting. Yeah. I'm reading a lot of the new left review now and getting in like despairing that Marazov might be Marazov and Mike Davis might be the last smart things they published in a year, but I haven't looked at fair. I haven't looked at the new left reviews, recent uh, publications at all. Well, I'm looking at their American Brumaire article. Um, Who's that by? From? It's from Dylan Riley, the guy who also wrote the seven co-wrote the seven thesis. Is with oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's from oh, but it's old. It's actually from 2017. It makes sense. Okay, yeah, because it's about Trump, right? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, duh. We all we all get it. We all know yeah, Trump every- is a butter smartest figure, but so is Biden. Biden is also a Bonapartist figure. God yes, damn it. it. Well, I mean, we did an episode about this a couple years ago, right? Uh, everyone is a Bonapartist. Yeah. Everything is Bonapartism. All figures are Bonapartist figures, and all movements in the United States are Bonapartist movements. That's true. Sanders yeah. is a Bonapartist figure too. 
Yep. Like, yeah. uh, except for, I mean, that's entirely true, but I also, except he's not it, successful. It's, it's, I just think that Bonapartism is like a, a more meaningful category than anyone even fits into. It's like, they're all aspiring Bonapartists, but they're not even quite there yet. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. I think Bonapartism is like, I've come to, I've come to actually even seeing it from a broader perspective than Marxism, that what we call Bonapartism happens when the complexity of a state has competing social classes that you have to like, try to reduce the complexity in a single figure. Mm Mm-hmm. And that single figure will pull randomly from things in the past to try to fix the situation. Uh, here's the scary thing, though. If you read like Joseph Tainter, that is the biggest sign that your society is about to collapse. Like, <laughs> so it's. Well, I mean, this society is definitely about to collapse. I mean, yes and no. That's the funny thing, though. I mean, we keep on saying that. And yet, I hate to tell people that, like, materially speaking, as shit as our infrastructure is and everything, like the United States is actually in a much better position than most of the rest of the world for, for a quote multipolar world, which is why I don't get why people don't under like I'm like, okay, so what? We like we were we, res- we resign ourselves to our poll and go back to bullying Latin America. Like Yeah, I mean we'll just re- just enforce the Monroe Doctrine harder instead yeah. of like a global police force. Right. And, and and also we have more food than everyone else except for Russia, and we also have manufacturing aimed at things other than military hardware, which Russia doesn't. I mean, uh, we could we could do autarky over here by ourselves really well much. if we needed I mean, to. That's kind of what Sanders wanted to do. That was yeah. his actual program. So, I mean, that, that's the funny thing about this, is I'm like, well, decoupling leads to multipolarity, but I don't think it leads to, like, the end of the U.S. being a dominant, a, a, a major hegemonic power at all. No. And in fact, because of that, I think we're going to have imperial hubris from the U.S. Because I think you see this in the likes of Peter Zion, actually. Peter Zion says some things that are very, very smart. But then you get this weird anti-China thing going on in there. And while some things he says about China are objectively true, like the demographic crisis that's affecting all the developed world is going to hit really weird in China because it's a shit ton of people. And so losing a – like a third of a billion people hits a little differently than you than losing a third of uh, a few million, you know, Um, all that said, uh, you know, Zion, it's like making it seem like China's collapse is intimate. And I think that's like people been trying to sell me that shit for, for three decades, you know, (laughs) Yeah, people that think that the that China's collapse is imminent are uh, just about as wrong as people who think the collapse of the United States is imminent. Right. I think I think what we're about to see is just a very, you know, I think I think the multipolar world is going to be a shrinking of horizons, but I don't think anybody left or right likes what it means if no. they actually think about it. You see a lot of uh, people on the right that are being very triumphalist about China's like uh, contracting economy, um, saying that it's a sign that China is about to go into full collapse. It's like China is no China's just acting like a mature capitalist power. I mean, I, I yeah, know exactly. that's what the left doesn't want to hear that either because you just said China was a mature capitalist power. But like, yeah, we want Daddy Z to save us, right? And I'm just like, no, I mean, like. I, I think China does have a more communitarian spirit, but I've even I've been reading the communitarians who went to like Michael Sandel went to China and is very popular in China, right? And he's not a leftist 
I mean, but he's against markets. There's a lot of things we'd agree with him on. But he was talking about how, like, even in China, Western meritocracy is the default mode for their elites right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's absolutely true. I've taught Chinese students. They're not that different than us uh, in that regard. Um, and what's interesting is they can still believe in a meritocracy in ways that, like, are we're clearly delusional. When we talk yeah, about exactly. It. Like, like, On- like, their leaders are still kind of responsible. Like, so, like, uh, uh, under socialism, meritocracy could possibly be a real thing. Right. But, and, uh, like, you know, I mean, I think that, like, there is absolutely, as far as Gini coefficient is concerned, China is definitely much, much closer to something that we would want to achieve than in the United States. But it is by no means something worth it still emulating. Has, it, it, it's still real funny when people are like, well, you, well, China has, you know, I say China has billionaires. I'm like, but how many per capita? I'm like, yeah, exactly. No, not as many yeah. per capita. You're right. But a socialist society would not have billionaires at all. I'm sorry, right. we wouldn't. Like, so this is this is my thing with China, right? And uh, this is where I, I fall in between the MLs and the you know left comms slash Trotskyist third campers or whatever. Is that like absolutely China is not what we want to emulate, right? I, I agree with that. But then at the same time, I, I don't agree with the wholesale condemnation of China as just being an absolutely irredeemable uh, hybrid monster of capitalism and Stalinism that is worse than both. Uh, yeah, that's nonsense to me. Yeah. I mean, right. if nothing else, I just think that um, we have already seen what happens whenever uh, whatever Stalinist government just collapses. It, and it, we don't get anything better. No. So, the fact that China is officially socialist, I just think I think a better uh, a better future for China is to be found in maintaining that and then making it more real. What I worry about, however, is the people like so to 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 say I agree with all that you're saying, but I, my caveat to that is most people's understanding of China is in a nationalist context and just that it's better than the United States, and I do think we have to insist that like it's not good enough. Right. It is a capitalist power. Absolutely. It wasn't before 1978. Um, I, I, and this makes me like actually differ from Trotskyist and actually aligned with some like left commies who will talk about, yeah, Mao was a real socialist experiment. The motherfuckers, the only socialist society actually tried to get rid of money. Yeah. Yeah. Like, (laughs) so that, that was communization theory at work. Like, yeah, it's actually interesting because the the, yeah. the uh, uh, Swang actually like they like that period of Maoism, and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, uh huh. Well, you know, um, Shanghai, the Shanghai Commune was. Uh, uh, I've heard of, I've heard people. I, I like the Kashama. Well, not the Kashama. Kasama. There we go. The yeah, Kasama, Kasama project. project. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then the RCP people. They see the highest achievement of of uh, the evolution of human society as being the Shanghai Commune. It's actually interesting when he, uh, I, I like, a, there's a scholar I like called Matt Rothwell who does the people's history of ideas. who's going through China and you see the ideas in China that I take issue with. Like they come up they're the, they're before the fascists do it. They are the people who come up with proletarian nation ideas to justify yeah. like not yeah. kicking out their bourgeoisie. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't the only thing in that party. 
and it wasn't Mao either. That's pre Mao. That's uh, yeah. That's, that's pre Mao because the the proletarian nation ideology comes about in like nineteen 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 twenty. Yeah, and in, it's a debate, and it's a debate that that happens. Uh, it happens. It happens literally concurrently in China in like nineteen twenty two, nineteen twenty three, because they don't know about the proletarian nation stuff in Italy. Right, and um, it's also happening in Germany around the same time with. Uh, with the national Bolsheviks, they get ejected from the KPD. But what's yeah, what, what's interesting about the the proletarian nation people is like some of their arguments in the Chinese version it aren't totally insane. <laughs> it's just right. like like look, you know, we're our, our capitalists don't emerge from in our culture. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it, it is insane in the Italian context. Like, a, yeah. a, a victorious imperial power coming out of the First World War that holds like colonies in Africa. Give me yeah. a fucking break. <laughs> um, so I think that's I, I think it's interesting. What I and I, I think it's interesting because Mal kind of tries to have his cake and eat his two in that debate. Like basically, he agrees with the proletarian proletarian nation people, but is also still wanting to hold on to classical class categories and thus their class categories. Like I I'm sitting down cause I'm writing like the history of ideas of class and I hit China and I'm like, Oh my God, like the different class theories that come out of China are like really hard to even map. It's yeah. like, um, but as I said, like, I think throwing, like, I think if we throw the Chinese out of the experiment, we, I mean, it's, partly Western chauvinism because, because Mao, like, yeah, I think there's a lot of Mao policies that are objectively fucking insane, but killed uh, all, kill, like killing all the sparrows. That yeah. one. <laughs> um, um, but the, and also the Sino-Soviet split is almost unforgivable and it's in favor of the capitalists. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. And then collaboration with the capitalists against right. Soviet quote unquote imperialism. Right. Yeah. yeah that, it, like and people like forget that like hey in 1960s the third world thesis had the USSR not in the second world motherfuckers he had it in the first world aligned with the capitalist powers like yep like I, I don't know if Mao did I think maybe it's Lin Bao but people like bring up three worlds stuff and then ignore what was actually in it um because yeah. I'm like no they're not arguing that the second world is is the USSR like was classically done they're arguing that the USSR is now part of the first world yeah um uh and then they do that to side with the west later it's it's it i mean it's are, are just stuff like i i'm going to like protect pinochet just despite the soviets yeah, yeah. um it <laughs> gets real bleak man like okay. uh if if you're not yet as black pilled as the three of us, just go read about Sino uh, Sino Soviet relations in the uh, you know in the 1970s and 80s. You know, but yeah. here's the thing: I would say, even though I think I think we have to admit that uh, at best China is some kind of state capitalist power, and I think the case for China is actually clearer than the case for the Soviet Union. Oh, absolutely. Um, I also think you could be defensive about China. I don't, you know, like, I think we can say like, okay, yeah, we, we need to hold, 
we need to hold the historical tradition accountable for shit like the Sino-Soviet split. But like right yeah. now, if I wanted a force for sanity in the world, I don't think I'm going to find it in Russia. I don't think I'm going to find it in most of BRICS. I'm definitely not going to find it in fucking India. And I'm not going to find it in the Western United States. I need like, is China a perfect socialist society? No. Is China even like free in a way we'd want it to be in a social, in a socialist world? No, but is China like something you could defend and, and see areas where you could actually like make four ways into international unity. Yes. And it's also frankly, the only place on the goddamn planet where there's a lot of worker militancy mm-hmm. uh, and understanding of, and that workers have understanding beyond their immediate sections. Like that there's still enough memory of the, like the proletarian cultural revolution that rural workers and urban workers understand each other. Yeah. Which is not the case in the West. Like there's there's just like an almost in, like like unbridgeable cultural divide between urban and rural. Work. Like and I, it's not just between the PMC and the worker. Whatever you think of that, it's yeah. also between the urban worker and the rural worker. Like they do not understand each other. I mean, that's kind of what I mean by like the fact that the uh, whatever whatever one can see about the official socialism in China, that is still, uh, it's still it's. It's a framework that's it's a motivating operative. idea. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it like Han nationalism could really subsume it too. Like there is it there are I, I want to point I, I want to point people out that like I understand there are reactionary forces within China natively in their nation building project that we should be concerned about. Right. Um and I do think it shows up in things that the West takes opportunistic advantage of, such as like the relationship of, of the Han Chinese to the Western Chinese and, and its manifestation in the Uyghurs. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, I, like there is something really going on there. Uh, is it the mass extermination that I hear a lot of my more Radlib friends tell me about? I don't have any evidence for that. Um, but is it ugly? Yes. Yes. L- like, and it's also partially the fault of the West that it is so because right. the West has been trying to foment uh, rebellion among the Uyghurs for years. For a long time. Also, yeah. the West also encouraged China to suppress the Uyghurs during the war on during the war on terror. Yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, they did. <laughs> like, do you remember? Do you remember the Command and Conquer series? Yes. The video games. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the one where you could be the Chinese and fight the terrorists? Yes. As part of the war on terror, you were allied with the United States. I had forgotten about that. Yeah, I remember yeah. I bought that game and I was just like, oh, this fucking sucks. <laughs> That's part of the problem when you talk about yeah. like Western stuff is like, you know, the West has been has been encouraging rebellion against Uyghur and Uyghur Jess. And the rest has also at the same time been encouraging a crackdown against the Uyghurs until like we start using it as a leverage point. Similarly, right. like like you know the Tibet situation, I I I do think like yeah the Mao is fucked up on Tibet, but I also think it's nutty that like people think we should be defending like a like a feral theocracy <laughs> like like yeah exactly literally it's like, was based on like massive monastery serfdom. Like, yeah, it's like you know what happened when China invaded Tibet? They abolished serfdom. Right. <laughs> I mean, I do think that China could have done a better job of pushing on elements within Tibetan society itself for liberalization. There, uh, Gindon Chopal, for example, is a, an area where that could have happened, um, and even parts of the Dalai Lama's own reformist project. But 
but why they felt the way they did makes total fucking sense. Like, does that mean I think that everything the Chinese has done to the Tibetans in retrospect is is smart? Absolutely. No, not. absolutely not. But it's just like it's kind of like look who your allies are, right? Right. Go to a go to a free Tibet rally. See who's on your side. <laughs> Uh, but uh, at the, yeah, I mean that's that's very reductionist, and I don't yeah, like. But yeah. Richard Gere is yeah. a, a part of that. So Madonna, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Who, I mean, uh, by the way, what... is a revolutionary proletarian icon now since people made fun of her plastic surgery. You know, I, in, I in totally the culture war, that. she's on our time on our side, right? Wow, I uh, I missed that entirely, dude. Oh, lucky you. It's probably but, because you don't have Twitter. Avoid the culture war. Yeah, absolutely. Like part of my for ways I, I was totally Twitter, joking, by the way. Yeah, yeah part of my yeah. for ways in Twitter is just like, oh my god. Even in the Marxological Twitter, where I'm like, what's our five minute hate now? And it's like, yeah. it's like, oh, you guys know that every time you attack Paul Cotshot for being a shitbag, which he totally is, you are maintaining his relevance as he hasn't said anything interesting since towards the new socialism twenty fucking years ago. Yeah. Um, and that like, being said, like just for everyone that's listening right now, if you have an opinion about the Harry Potter video game, then fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> it's it's funny because I'm like, I don't have to worry about this JK Rowan shit because it never meant anything to me. And I thought the obsession of someone who just basically ripped off Star Wars uh was was uh not worth it anyway. So there you go. That's an acceptable opinion to have about J.K. Rowling. And another one would be like, um, uh, yeah, well, I don't care about her politics and I don't care about uh, anyone else's opinions about her politics and I don't care about uh, those books at all. That's a good one. I mean, I just find it interesting that we're, this is actually this is actually another point where I'm going to sound like I'm Mark Fisher hauntological, but it actually is something to think about. Why, He's not all wrong. Why are we stuck now in debates about being horrified by the politics of shit that we want to perpetuate? In the, like it's like we like we we seem to want to perpetuate youth culture, and by youth I don't even mean like teenage early twenties. I mean like your preteens now. Oh yeah, um, like little kid it, culture into the perpetual future. Right. Like it, we, it, it, it's like you can't come up with your like. Now that it's like, oh, I'm I'm losing my childhood now that J.K. Rowling. I'm like, you you should have lost. You're 40 fucking years old. You should have lost your <laughs> childhood anyway. Um, yeah. Why why do we need children's entertainment? Rodal was a fascist. I already knew that. So yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Why do we need our children's entertainment to first of all, uh, continue to be geared towards adults, and then why also do we need it to be like, uh politically good right i mean well that's because our our elites who okay let's one the capitalists still exist but they pretty much checked out yes right they're living off of reinvestments two um because of that everything's being run by managers has been structuralized three um our elites have given up on any merit but but either technocratic expertise or moral superiority and mm-hmm. moral superiority. They're adding back into the technocratic expertise because they realized that that was a problem. Um, but their, their idea, of, <laughs> we should have left their, that one in their idea of moral superiority is the most facile bullshit that you could have gotten from like the dumbest form of cultural studies class in 1997. Yeah. 
So, which makes sense if you think about what happened where a lot of these people got educated in the in the 90s aughts and aught teens, took, didn't get jobs, kind of got spears in first blogging, which I actually think, you know, had progressive elements to it in the grand scheme of thing. Then YouTube videos and now fucking TikTok. Mm. Um, where you where each each one of those iterations you're trying to make complicated arguments that were kind of dumb even in their complicated form, let's be honest, but yeah. at least were defensible in the in book form, uh, into like sound bites, you know, first moving from book to blog post, then from blog post to um to YouTube video, which all of us are guilty of, uh, into yeah, that's true. Into where, where I draw my line is TikTok. I'm like, or are not just TikTok as a format. Like, people are like, why don't you make reels? I'm like, I you can. I'm not letting you shorten my <laughs> argument to two minutes. Look, this is a two hour podcast so far, and we're still going. Okay, right. <laughs> In defense of the long form, even yeah. if it is degenerate internet uh, <laughs> like content. Yeah, and we have only vaguely tried to stay on topic. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, I, I just think. Like, if you can explain your point in a reel, then your point hasn't been developed well enough yet. Yeah, it's it, here's the thing. I'm not saying that everything has to be. Like, I was complaining to you about the arcanity of the way a lot of people write. Like, yeah, like uh, it's like, oh, this is needlessly complicated and arcane, and it's designed to keep people out. Uh, you don't have to do that. Uh, you can explain things in relatively simpler terms, but what you can't do is like. Oh, I'm going to talk about X historical position in two fucking minutes. Like, which is why people have, like, even something like this article, we're still going like, well, why are we skipping all this prior history? And, and like, all this context is missing. And look at all this context that emerges from this weird context, right? Like, and this is a good, long, dense article. Like I, right. this is not a critique of Morozov. No, um, we we had this argument in uh, in grad school, right? We're we are all sitting around talking about in a, in a, one of my seminars about ways to engage with people to to make history something that people want to engage with more because history enrollment is down. Um, and uh, people bring up, oh, we got to reach out on TikTok, and I was like, look. Like <laughs> this is actually going to be, this is actually counterintuitive. It is going to do the exact opposite of what you want because the algorithm prioritizes engagement and engagement is driven by controversy first and foremost. So you're going to look at people with the shittiest fucking hot takes making the most argumentative and least, uh, you know, theoretically what sophisticated. What? people fucking arguing if Rome exists. There, there's Yeah. Exactly. Or stuff like um, just trying to find trying to make the most outrageous claims about uh, loved political figures. And that's what, you know, like Thomas Jefferson owns slaves. OK, yeah, cool. We know that. Yeah, we right? know that. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, it's just stuff like that. And that's that's supposed to be what drives people's. To engagement. be fair, that's also what liberal academia has been doing for 20 years on that. It has been. But now they want to condense that into TikTok sound bites. Oh God! This is 
This is like what happened with Twitter. You know what's happened with Twitter? They used it to try to make they, they thought it was going to make you know academia more accessible. What it actually did was open up tenure sniping to things that were totally unethical. Like, Absolutely, like like uh, we discuss this all the time, and uh, in the introduction um, introduction to graduate program courses that they make you take, like uh, the way that several uh, academics have gotten into serious trouble by starting flame wars on Twitter in order to try to gain popularity or gain visibility for whatever it is that they're writing. Yeah, and it works act- in some instances. It does work. And sometimes it actually also, for example, gives them relevance because they're acting like the people who can't tell journalism and activism apart. Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, I know I just stepped into can of worms with that. But, uh, <laughs> but um, it's, and it's easy for people to say, oh, Varn, you're just yelling at clouds. And I'm like, look, if if you guys could prove to me that I was wrong, but you've been telling me I've been yelling at clouds for two years. And then I point out to you, okay, literacy is dying. And they're like, oh, no, that's, that, that's good. Media literacy is also dying. Yeah. What? They can't people like what you complain about boomers being fooled on the internet is actually across the board. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I listen, mean, listen, hear me out. Did you see that? Fuck person? those clouds. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the, the, the giant? There was like a, you know, it's like a big phenomenon for a second where like somebody had seen it, found a giant and they had recorded it. It was like walking on the side of a mountain. It was on TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't a boomer. Yeah. Well, it's like remember when we made fun of the uh, of the boomers for the giant of Kandahar like stories that were, yeah. Well, now we've got Zoomers seeing them uh, in uh, the United States. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's. Uh, I mean, well, the other thing is, I think we, I do think sometimes we've been like too. We've been like, oh, it's the internet and boomers and the internet. I'm like, I watched Unsolved Mysteries as a kid. This has been a problem <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it has. My other problem is like, is I got I get people mad at me when I text about like, like the Cy Hurst article, and I'm like, God, the Cy Hurst article is poorly sourced, sourced, but the response to it's been pathetic. Outside of like, ironically, people complaining it's on Substack and there's not enough editors. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, the funny thing is, all the decent responses to it, you know where they're at, and new politics are on Substack themselves. And I'm like, because the actual rooters, you know what it did. It just said Cyhurst's claim, said the White House's claim, and then gave Cyhurst's CV, and that was it. And I was like, "You're you're not even going to investigate multiple sourcings, like." And so I'm like, "No wonder." Like, so like getting mad at Cyhurst for that's ridiculous, right? Like, whether yeah. or not you think, whether or not you think, like I, you know, I don't know what happened on Norm Stream. I can tell you who who I'm. From not just Cyhurst's article, from the preponderance of evidence, didn't do it. Um, there's Russia? almost nobody who indicates that it's Russia. Yeah, I mean, but... to me, like the only like I read the the title of Cyhurst's article and was like, oh, qui bono, got it. And then yeah. I didn't even look into it any further. I just was like, it it makes sense. And then when I finally went and actually like looked into it, I read the article and I read a, a couple what a couple of other people had to say about it uh some good criticisms some bad criticisms and i still think that it probably was someone associated with the united states but probably not for a lot of the reasons that cy Hirsch said 
Right, exactly. That was my yeah. sort of like it's like Cyhurst's causal logic is kind of sloppy and it it is. Um but but the, but the, the way like, that they're smearing him as being some sort of like wacko conspiracy theorist instead of like you know the guy Seymour who broke Hirsch. the yeah, like the you know <laughs> like the guy that broke I, the Milai massacre and right. fucking Abu Ghraib scandal, right? Right. I'm like, come on. I mean, yeah, I will admit he made a lot of stuff about he made a lot of claims about what he knew the military was going to do in Iran that didn't happen. Yeah, um, people are wrong sometimes, but I mean, like, like it's just yeah. the the way that the way that people want to jump down the throats of people they disagree with when they fuck up one time. It's 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 just incredibly intellectually dishonest. But it also, in a weird way, also drives this polarization, right? Like, yeah. cause like, like, uh, I used to call this the Whitaker Chambers problem. Like, Whitaker Chambers did get kind of fucked, um, in the 1930s when he was a when he was part of the the communist movement. Like, yeah. Um. And he did end up going more and more siding with the conservatives. And I think, uh, well, there's some evidence that Alger Hiss was a spy. Uh, fucking Whitaker Chambers didn't really have it. Um, all that is to say that uh, Chambers moved right wing because those were the people who would like treat him decently. Which is not to say that it's defensible that he did it, right? Yeah, but it's it's like, just important to understand why it happened, right? Like, and we've seen this a lot in the past. I mean, particularly when we talk about Gen Xers, like Gen Xers are like the left is mean to me and and being ridiculous, and sometimes the left is mean to them and being ridiculous. Right wingers are nice to me. I mean, yeah, sometimes they are. Yeah, um, and like pointing out that you recognize that this is a phenomena will get you called fucking uh like crypto fash. Yeah. yeah, red brown. Yeah. Um. You, well, here's the thing that I feel like we're stuck in right now is like people who are stitch jacking everybody versus people who are fast jacketing everybody. Yeah. Like, it's like you're a product of the CA. Well, you're a fascist. I'm like, fucking Christ. Like, <laughs> in actuality, neither happened? of you are either. Like, <laughs> in actuality, what happened is we have completely and utterly internalized COINTELPRO and Operation Chaos disruption tactics as good practice, and we perpetuate them ourselves. Yes. The irony of COINTELPRO success is we haven't needed it for 40 fucking years. (laughs) We're just all out here doing cop work for free. (laughs) Come on, people. Like, you know, like, I don't love Stalinists, nor do I particularly like certain, you know, uh, editorial outlets who are who are quote anti-imperial and man i people get mad when i point out the, the most recent thing was like called the rage against the war machine i'm like yeah it was incoherent people are like yeah but there used to be a coherence i'm like you're gonna tell me that i experienced a coherence and the anti-bush war years when that's how i got recruited to the right you dipshits like, <laughs> the, anti, the anti-war movement the the uh, during the, the bush years movement has yeah. never been coherent not it even during was. like the 60s or the 20s or any time like, well maybe in world war one 
when it was only the IWW and the Socialist Party that were involved in it. <laughs> well, no, there was a there was a proto paleo conservative movement involved in it too, like like uh, like Robinson Jeffers, etc. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly in World War II, the anti imperialist yeah. streak was like partly right wing. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, like you know, but you would original, never you you wouldn't encounter those people in the same place. Not no. after the war started. After no. the war started, the only people that were left were the IWW and the uh, the Socialist Party. Correct. Yeah, um, and, and, some weird, and that's not actually and some even weird neo Confederates. Actually, that's <laughs> actually not even true because, like, the U.S. government had to bludgeon the United States uh, populace into submission. Right. But once that part was yeah. through, once that part was through, the only people that were left were like principled anti imperialists. Yeah, it was like the anti imperialist league, which was at that time, like actually anti-progressive uh the iww and the cpa i mean not, not cpa that the spa and the cpusa like yeah. um and world war ii it's a mess i mean you want to talk about someone getting shit wrong my favorite stuff is like dewey dewey's pro world war one and anti-world war ii and i'm like <laughs> i'm like god damn it man <laughs> like don't develop a conscience at the wrong time <laughs> Um, we should start leaning towards wrapping this up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is, uh, we haven't talked about technical feudalism in a while. It's I, okay. This is this is all good shit. So I mean, lucky you, listeners, you get like all this bonus content. Yeah, you basically get the the, the bullshit episodes we do afterwards. Yeah. at the same time. Um, you know, I think it is interesting though. I think the last thing I want to think on is this is a similar point we made on the first one where we were more. Everyone is always trying to take their immediate circumstances as somehow transhistorical. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. This leads into the, you know, I even think this is part of like this goes back to like the 1850s when Marx thinks like a miseration is going to lead to the immediate end to capitalism in the, yeah. like, the 1850s. Marx is, I think, Marx learns the right lesson that like no bro that's not necessarily the case i still think he thinks socialism is inevitable but i i think he does think we have i think what 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 we interpret as variance is marx does think well how we get there in the time scale might be different like right that, like that's a matter of politics like and you definitely see this when you get to like the letters of Vito stulerk when he's like uh, well, you know, Russia may be able to use the peasant communes to develop socialism, but they can only do that because capitalism has already happened in Europe, And but maybe they don't have to go through it. Maybe they can just, like, a, a, you know, have some socialists expropriate some stuff and hook them up with it, and then they can go directly into... Um, that's like the Marx-Engels compromise position. Because um, it's also the Trotskyist permanent revolution theory. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, We'll get into my problems with Trotskyism one day when we, I guess, actually soon because we're going to have the, the, the regrettable century, the measures taken, Varm blog, uh, uh, the strange death of the strange, really late death of Trotskyism, and I know the yeah. IMTers are going to are going to get mad <laughs> that we're declaring Trotskyism dead, but like, there ain't many of you left, <laughs> like, oh. like. Like, I can uh, I consider myself certainly post Trotskyist. Um, I definitely have been raised in the Trotskyist tradition, and a lot of my ideas are stemmed from debates that Trotsky was involved in. 
But at the same time, I reject a lot of yeah. Trotsky's tradition. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean Trotsky's better than his followers, and his fo- and like different periods yeah, of his absolutely. followers are better than others. I but... I feel the same way about Trotsky as I do about Pantera. You're like, <laughs> I like him a lot, you know, but I don't really want to hang out with anybody who's like really, really into Pantera and has What's like Pantera in, yeah. shirts and stuff. It's well, I mean. That you're yeah. in trouble for saying that. There's a like every every rad lib on the internet's going to cancel you because Phil Anselmo Sieg Heil did like a few years ago. Remember? I think it wasn't it like 20 or no, it was like 2016 or something. Oh, well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's because Dimebag was was dead and couldn't be the voice of Reason. That's yeah. right. Um, well, you know, I mean, it's like I don't expect the fucking every piece of art that I consume to be uh, politically perfect. If I did that, then I wouldn't be able to consume <laughs> any art. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm uh, after this, I'm going to go read some HP Lovecraft who is totally unproblematic. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. And on that note, I think we're going to end because I was about to say something even more inflammatory. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, pound on. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I was just going to say something that. about the degeneration of liter uh, of literary studies to just like fandoms, but then also like, yeah, but that's like expanded across the board now. Yeah, absolutely, um, it is. A lot of the debates that we consider shit live actually start off in like debates in these fandoms. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all. The worst thing that we ever did in this country is let nerds take over popular culture. Uh, and I'm a and I'm a big fan of some nerd culture too. I think everybody is, but that's yeah. that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Like, like, um, get over your your high school years, my friends. Yeah. If only we had a producerist mentality. No. Um, <laughs> all right. And on that note, let us yeah uh, see y'all next time. Wrap this up. All right, and note that we are all going to be canceled for this. Thank you.